This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. How much is too much to ask of a sports fan? Pac-12 Conference making me wonder that. They recently, and by recently, I mean earlier this week, came out with the rotation for the men's basketball teams in the conference. Scheduling rotation approved by the men's basketball coaches and the athletic directors. Now in cement. Pac-12 circulating a version of the schedule today behind the scenes that would have Oregon and Oregon State's women's programs. Highly successful, big draw. It would have those programs also hosting games in Eugene and Corvallis on the same weekends as the men's teams. Of course, Oregon State and Oregon are going to vote it down. They're not going to go for that. But it only requires nine of the 12 members to say yes in order to have that be the schedule. And that is the schedule being circulated per multiple sources. Now, it doesn't matter in Tempe. It doesn't matter in Seattle. It doesn't matter at Cal. But it certainly matters at Oregon and Oregon State when you take a program that draws very well and you stick it in the same weekend as the men's team, you're essentially asking fans who go to either or, and oftentimes are one and the same fan, you're asking them to go to a men's game on a Thursday, a women's game on a Friday, a men's game on a Saturday, and a women's game on a Sunday. You're asking them to go to four straight games. Now, traditionally, these have been staggered on alternating weekends. So it also means that while Oregon and Oregon State, if the schedule is approved, would play on the first weekend, let's just say hypothetically, of, of the month, and play on the third weekend of the month at home, that the arenas would be dark on the second and fourth weekends of the month. It makes no sense. It is another example of bad leadership. Jamie Zaninovich, who used to be in charge of basketball scheduling, who left the conference uh, several months ago to go do something else. He was the head of basketball inside the Pac-12. Does anybody else think he saw the tip of the iceberg and just said, I, it's about time for me to get off the boat? Jamie Zaninovich, the basketball conference misses you. Coaches in the conference uh, today on the women's side just scratching their heads going, well, wait a minute, what, Oregon and Oregon State are the two biggest draws, maybe, when it comes to women's college basketball inside the conference, and you're going to stick them on the same weekends as the men's team at home? I hope more than uh, three or four schools vote that down. Otherwise, you're going to have a problem if you're a sports fan. But it gets me thinking about how much these colleges and how much the pro teams 
are asking of fans these days. Let's just outline what pro teams and college teams are asking of sports fans. They're asking this of you. It is a demand directly pointed at you. They're asking you to go to more games as they increase the length of the season, as they add postseason and in-season tournaments as it pertains to the NBA. They're asking you to pay for preseason games and pay full freight for preseason games if you're an NFL season ticket holder and adding a game to your season. They're asking you to pay, obviously, higher prices, as uh, even though the uh, e- even though the uh, quality of the product in some cases is watered down, they're saying, hey, there's an increased demand. We're going to ask more money of you. Uh, in the case of pro teams and college teams, they ask you for the equivalent of seat licenses. You know, the pro teams say it's it's literally a PSL. It's a, pre- uh, a personal seat license. And in the case of the colleges, they'll ask you for a donation to the athletic fund inside said conference. They're asking too much of you. And I'm wondering what gives and at what point. And when the Pac-12 conference sticks the Ducks and the Beavers at home on the same weekend in men's and women's basketball, they are ignoring the fundamental principle that is involved in that relationship between a sports entity and its fan base. They're ignoring the fact that, like, you know, hey, uh, we're here for you. This is an event that is being put on. They are, uh, with the... Uh, with the increasing importance of television, I think de-emphasizing the fan experience inside the arenas and inside the stadiums. They have sold out completely to television. And in the end, this is just another example if this schedule gets approved. Now, it just, just may be that somebody in the Pac-12 offices didn't notice it. And Oregon and Oregon State, I'm sure today, are banging the drum going, hey, this is wrong. It was alerted to me by one of the opposing coaches within the conference who said, hey, did Oregon, Oregon State can't be happy with the schedule that they're circulating trying to get approved. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, the Ducks and the Beavers are at home on the same weekends that the men's teams are at home. It just makes no sense. And if you're a basketball fan in the state who supports your school, you know, like if you're a diehard Duck fan and you're a fan of Dana Altman's basketball program and you're a fan of Kelly Graves' basketball program at Oregon or you're a fan of Wayne Tinkle's program at Oregon State and you're a fan of uh, Scott Ruick's program at Oregon State on the men's and women's side, that, that you know that you know you often have to make decisions. This is, it isn't easy. It isn't convenient always with you sports and the demand of your life to get to the arena anyway. But when they ask you to go four nights in a row, and they don't stagger these things enough, and they don't give you enough or chance to exhale or at least put them on opposite weekends. They're just plain and simply asking too much of fans. Now, I'm sure me calling attention to it is going to cause the Pac-12 conference to go, hey, wait a minute, you know, maybe we should back this out. And they'll go, oh, no, no, it was just a proposal, and our coaches were looking at it. But I am told that this is a proposal that is up for vote right now. Like, there isn't a Schedule B here. This is just, hey, this is the schedule. Everybody okay with this? And then uh, if they can get 9 out of 12 votes, they will approve it. Uh, Coaches can't be happy about it. Even the men's coaches can't be happy about it at Oregon and Oregon State. It's just plain and simply asking too much. On that note, you are the consumer. And I would love to hear from you today. As I talk through all that's being asked of you as a sports fan, the rising ticket prices, the increases in parking, personal seat licenses, just the cost for a family to go to the game, the fact that the sports calendar is more and more crowded, the fact that they make you buy when you're buying a season ticket package, you know, all the preseason games in the NFL. You tell me, like, what is the biggest annoyance for you? Where are they asking too much of you as a sports fan? Is it kickoff times? 
Is it the cost of the game? Is it the amount of games? Is it the variety of offerings? Is it that the the fact that they're asking you to you know commit to the athletic fund and make a donation to your university if you're getting season tickets? Is it just the fact that they're asking you to pay for a parking space that uh, isn't paved? Like you tell me, I don't let me bellyache on your behalf. You're free to bellyache as well. And I I could easily call this segment, you know, uh, basically uh, what's your peeve when it comes to being a sports fan and the demands that are being asked of you. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. I can just tell you, you know, I've got three daughters. And, you know, I, I have purchased tickets to go see Disney on Ice. I have purchased tickets to go see sporting events. I'm not immune to that. And I often look down from the press box at games that I'm traveling to, and I see empty seats, and I kind of wonder if the kickoff times in the Pac-12 conference or maybe just the fact that uh, there's so much going on in the course of a weekend and a regular family's weekend, like, you know, come Saturday, tomorrow, there'll be a 1230 kickoff at Reeser Stadium as Oregon State is hosting San Diego State, and then later in the evening over at Autzen Stadium, a 5 p.m. game. And you can see that, like, you know, families have got to make decisions like, you know, hey, we got soccer game, we got a, uh, a youth baseball game, we got a practice, or, you know, you have a family event, and then you're having to go, okay, you know, do we attend a soccer game or not? You know, like, my kid's going to be playing in a soccer game at 11 a.m. I'm going to miss it. I'll be watching Oregon State kickoff at 1230, and I can tell you, that if our family had like season tickets to Oregon State and we really were like diehard Beaver fans or we were diehard Duck fans, the Duck game would work better for us. And we go, okay, we can make that one. But it doesn't always happen that way on a given weekend. I want to hear from you. What is your peeve when it comes to what they're asking of you? And by they, I mean the sports world, professional teams, college teams, 503-417-7575. Public service announcement. I want to put this out uh, just on news release from the Oregon State Police. If you're going to be traveling to one of those football games this weekend, the Oregon State Police will be enhancing their efforts on I-5 in between Eugene and Portland and all of the intersecting highways and roadways between Corvallis and Eugene on Saturday. Uh, Oregon State and Oregon both have home football games, as I mentioned. They will draw a significant number of fans to the area, and it appears that the Oregon State Police will be looking uh, for people who are speeding and people who are violating the law and people who are driving impaired. Now, the OSP uh, tells says in their news release, and I think they're sending this out kind of preventatively, that they are focused on reducing violations of the fi- fatal five categories, speed, safety, lane usage, impaired driving, and distracted driving. So keep that in mind. If you're out there on the roadways, I don't want you getting caught up in that. And worse yet, I don't want you getting in an accident. Judah Newby, you're in studio. Judah, what you know? What are what are sports teams asking too much? Like if the Pac-12 puts the Ducks and the Beavers men's and women's basketball games on the same weekend, I think it's just stupid. But in what other way are the sports entities asking too much of fans? Well, the way you lay it out makes a lot of sense in that it is asking too much, especially for fans that like to attend games in person. Now, I'm in the market and the demographic in the the fandom that relies on my smartphone devices, you know, my television and everything like that. So you give me four games in four days that I'm interested in, it becomes just more of a time management uh, challenge for me. But I I might try to tune in and watch them, and I wonder how many fans are just – going to stay home and watch and it corresponds with the argument that you make uh, regularly john and it's just the in-stadium experience whether football or these other sports 
it's just not the same as it used to be. And this dovetails to it. If you're really trying to get fans to your venues, you're not putting them in situations like this. I totally agree with that. But on the other hand, maybe they are just trying to make their, you know, their product more available on, on more days of the week. I guess I kind of get that, but I'm with you. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, we, we've we've complained about kickoff times when it comes to college football, and I think it's justifiable. Like, I do hear from a lot of friends and a lot of neighbors who are maybe, let's just say, age 65 and older, who don't like to drive at midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, depending on what time a game kicks off and, and what's going on at the stadium. And I just think it's it's a big ask there. I think I think those kickoff times are a big ask of families. I think it's a big ask from a financial standpoint to to just say, hey, invest in season tickets and thousands of dollars uh, for games that we're not going to even tell you when we're going to kick off. And then I think when you start compounding things and you make it more and more difficult for fans to get to the arena because you're scheduling men's and women's games on the same damn weekend, um, I just think it, it causes the fan to have to go, well, wait, wait a minute, maybe I don't buy a women's season ticket package in basketball. And I find it interesting that the conference put out the men's schedule first. Like, you know, I don't I don't necessarily know if that, you know, rises to a Title IX violation, but it just kind of felt to me like they came up with the men's schedule in the Pac-12 and decided the rotation, and then they got all the coaches to approve it, and then they went, okay, let's do the women's schedule as an afterthought. And in some cases, and I think Oregon State is one of those, you know, you could argue that there's been more success on the women's side and there's been more interest on the women's side. No, no question about that. By the way, you mentioned that this is up for a vote. Given that it's the you know 2023 schedule, so they they still can vote on on this stuff. They just can't vote for anything else in the future as of now. Yeah, right now that that is considered sort of a it's not a governance issue. It's just the athletic directors uh, and their coaches get to approve or not approve the schedule. Now they do this with all the sports. They do this with football. They do it with basketball. They do it with some of the smaller sports. And generally, they come up with a schedule that works, and they've thought it through. But Jamie Zaninovich, the deputy commissioner in the Pac-12 who left the Pac-12 conference a few months ago, he was the basketball person, and he was in charge of scheduling, and he had a way of doing it. I don't know who's doing it now. And so I, I wonder if this is a byproduct of what we see here, kind of the dismantling of the Pac-12 conference. Now, Tuesday night, they came up with this employee retention plan that they approved and it's it's supposed to keep employees and it offers bonuses to employees who stay through the end of their sports season that they're responsible for everybody gets a bonus you know there's a certain set of bonuses if you stay through December 31st there's a whole chunk of employees there and then there's more that are in March and then there's another wave of employees in June um, and and they all get retention bonuses if they go to the end of it well, Jamie, who is a deputy commissioner in charge of basketball, he took off a few months ago, and I'm not quite sure who's running basketball. Could be Teresa Gold, who's a deputy with the uh, with the conference, but I'm trying to get to the bottom of that. But the proposed schedule rotation, and if you're a basketball fan, this matters to you, and if you're not a basketball fan, it should still matter to you because it just kind of shows you how silly and absurd the uh, the thinking is inside the Pac-12 right now that the rotation that is up for vote has Oregon and Oregon State women playing home series on the same weekends as a men's team. So you're basically saying, hey, if you buy season tickets to the men's game and you buy season tickets to the women's games, if this schedule gets approved, then um, you uh, 
you will uh, be there four days in a row, or you will be having to pick and choose which games you go to. Would it help at all if, like, you know, the the campus leadership at these places, like, did ticketing packages specials, you know, like the Blazers might do for a homestand or something like that, and now you're you're increasing or, or trying to generate, you know, in-person interest for both of your programs. Like, it, maybe the men's games ordinarily would draw more, but, hey, if you package it with the women's games as well, maybe that's actually helping it, or is that just, you know, any way you slice it is still asking too much i just think anyway you, you slice it because i think it's hard enough right i think i think the football teams know that the competition from your living room on saturdays sometimes on fridays is is fierce and i think they're up against that like oregon state and oregon are up against competing against the tv in your living room and i think anytime you start to add complications okay you have two kids one of them plays a sport one of them is playing a musical instrument. Now you got band recitals. You got youth sports practices and games, and you start to get resistance points that are enough in in a regular family's life that that you shouldn't be adding unnecessary ones. And to me, this is unnecessary as it pertains to like you know, if you're a basketball fan at Oregon, I think it's hard enough because you know if you are a basketball fan at Oregon, you're going okay Thursday nights and Saturday nights. We're going to these games at Matthew Knight Arena. And if you want to support the women's program, it's Fridays and Sundays. But, oh, guess what? If you want to support both, you're four nights in a row hanging out at the arena? And That's the thing. I think it's the rotation element of it. It's the fact that it's like every homestand is going to be this way. It's one thing if it's a rivalry doubleheader, like this special event. Women play in the afternoon, men play at night. Come see your Ducks Beavers, you know, in the same venue, same day. Like, it's a big thing. But to ask this every time the home schedule rolls around, yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But now that I say that, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, this is a ship lacking a rudder and lacking a direction. And, if well, if it is going in a direction, it's going down. So so isn't this kind of the evidence of a conference that's going down anyway? I think, yeah, in the loss of Jamie Z, who was doing all the scheduling, is probably a killer right now. But, mm. you know, I had a, wash, a couple of Washington State fans tweeted at me and said, you know, hey, the, look, four, ga- four days in a row is great for me. Well, if you're retired yeah. and you're making a two-hour drive, yeah, that's awesome. And you can catch both teams in one swoop. And the, the women's team's coming off a, you know, a Pac-12 tournament championship last year. But for the men's teams, I also just think it's a really – you know, it's a really bad use of your home arena. You don't want your arena dark on a weekend. Like, anytime you can kind of keep the lights on and keep it busy and right. keep it humming, uh, it just opens up more and more possibilities. We have a great show for you today. we got a bunch of guests, including Oregon State wide receiver Anthony Gould, who will be joining us at 4 o'clock. Marcus Graves, who is uh, at CBS Channel 8 in San Diego, will be up in the next segment, he's a former Oregon State football player. He's now working in TV. I'm going to have him give a scouting report on San Diego State. Plus, we'll talk about the Pac-12 conference at, at large with Marcus Graves. Also, later in the program, did you know Andrew Luck is coaching high school football? It's true. Alex Simon of the San Jose Mercury News did a great story on it. Simon will be joining us to talk about Andrew Luck uh, in the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, we'll give our picks... Anna will be along to do the 5 at 5 at 5 o'clock. So, Stephen and Judah, you're off the hook. Anna's got it today. And we'll have our big splash uh, and and punch it audio all on today's show. But coming up next, we'll go to Sand Dog. We'll go to San Diego to check in on Marcus Graves. We'll have him give a scout on San Diego State. What's wrong with them this season? And how badly will Oregon State beat them? We'll talk about that coming up. you got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. Former Oregon State running back Marcus Graves 
is uh, he launched a career in media years and years ago after his playing days, but it finds him now at an interesting crossroads. He is now working and living in Southern California, where he is working at uh, Channel 8 in uh, San Diego, and he is uh, he's the sports guy there and uh, doing a great job for them, but uh, anchor and reporter at CBS 8, former Oregon State student, former Oregon State football player, Marcus Greaves joining us now. Do you miss football? Let's start there. Do you miss it? Uh, I'm going to tell you this. I, I miss it um, for running out of the tunnel, enjoying it with the fans, enjoying it with my teammates. But, man, let me tell you, at 28 years old, I'm moving around like I'm 70 now. So <laughs> I, think, uh, I think I'll leave everything else in the past, man. I, uh, I had a great time, but, you know, it feels a lot better watching the game rather than uh, playing it now. I, as I recall, your senior year, you suffer a knee injury in spring ball. Is that right? Yes, sir. Two ACL injuries throughout my college career. So that's where I was like, you know what, maybe I should have picked up golf or uh, maybe uh, should have been a, a swimmer. But, yeah, man, two ACLs ended my career a little earlier than anticipated. Give me an idea, because a lot of people will not play Division One college football, Marcus. And, you know, the demands on athletes at that time, you were in the program 2014, 2015, 2016, right in that sweet spot. What was it like for you? Uh, it was a great time, man. I think I grew a lot, obviously, as an individual. And when you go physical attributes, it's it's insane, man. I get to college at about 180 pounds, probably soaking wet. Um, by the time my first spring ball came around, I was sitting out at about 210 pounds. And uh, I was I was a, a little different individual, I'll say that, man. Just the growth that you have to go through in order to play Division One, um, the taxing that it has on your body, and then the exhaustion that it has when it comes mentally. I mean, you gotta you gotta be ready for anything and everything, man. And um, you know, learning the playbook, being disciplined, getting up every morning at four fifteen. For me, it was at four twenty seven on the dot. Uh, you know, just the just the burden that it takes on your body and, and your mental health. But it's crazy because it's all worth it, man. You know, it's all absolutely worth it and. Just the experience you have, it's something I will forever be grateful for that I got to experience. But, again, my man, now it's nice to, to watch the game and, <laughs> yeah. and talk about it instead of physically playing it. Yeah. Why 427? Can I ask that? Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, for a lot of us, we were the best players on our teams, respectfully, in high school. Um, and, and then you make it to college and my first experience of college when it came to realizing that I'm not the top dog anymore mm. was we did conditioning my first season there and I remember Victor Bold and I saw Vic and Vic and I are really good friends to this day I remember seeing him and saying you know that guy he might be a little too small to be this this all big playmaker like like everyone is saying that he is and you know me being a, a, a track guy at the time I thought I was fast and I'm gonna <laughs> tell you this man I thought Heavy emphasis on thought. We raced for the first time, and I'm not, I'm not kidding you. By the time the whistle blew, I saw Vic at the end of the 50-yard line, and me, I was still at probably the 20. So I was like, you know what, <laughs> it's a little different. But it's just, you know, it, it's just a dedication, and obviously in order to get on the field with all those great athletes that you have on your team, you got to be top-notch, and you got to be sharp, and you got to absolutely um, be ahead of the game. And so that that's constant film, constant rehab prehab so you don't have so you don't get injured um and just preparing yourself every single day because to be honest with you every single day of practice is is you know some game take for a lot of kids so 
you got to fight your way on the field. And luckily for me, I was I was uh, fortunate enough to work very hard and, and know what I was doing to get on the field, even at special teams, which, believe it or not, is just as hard as anything else. So um, you just got to be sharp, man, 24-7. There's, there's hundreds of guys who would love to – actually thousands of people who would love to have your position. So you gotta you got to make the most of it when you get the opportunity. Marcus Greaves is with us, anchor and reporter at CBS Channel 8 in San Diego. You made the transition from football player uh, to media member, and I remember when you stud- suddenly started showing up in the press box, you showed in news conferences, I was like, wait a minute, this guy's just uh, flipped the script here. So give me an idea, like, what, what did you always want to do that, or was that something that occurred to you while you were playing, or how did that come about? Yeah, it actually occurred to me after I was done playing. So, you know, every kid thinks he's going to go to the NFL. And two ACOs later, I was like, you know what? Football might not be for me long-term anymore. So I actually went to Evanson Bernard, former Oregon State running back. I went to his office when he worked at Oregon State at the time. And I'll, I'll never forget, he told us, he came and talked to the running back. He said, if you guys need anything from me, no matter what it is, I'm here. So just come talk to me. Now, again, I thought I was going to the NFL once that dream kind of was cut short I had no idea what I wanted to do um, and so I was I was just a lost college kid went straight to Edmonton's office um, obviously I was upset because I had to retire I'm pretty sure I had some tears in my eyes and I was like man I'm going to be honest with you I need you right now man I need your advice and uh, what do you think I should do he at the time worked at NBC Sports up in Portland I'm talking bees he said man this is what I do right now maybe you like it I don't know maybe you're going to love it maybe you're going to hate it but just come up with me, man. Drive up with me to Portland. We'll see how, how much you like it. But to be honest with you, John, the first time I went there, I absolutely hated it. I was like, this is not for me. I, I, I don't want to talk. I'm a little too shy for this. But then as I kept going and going and going to these shows with him, I started to understand the industry a little more, and I thought, you know what? This is something I can do long term. So got to tip my hat to Edmonton Bernard, Angie uh, Machado. Both of, those, both of those individuals helped me big time in media. Um, and it's been amazing to see, and it's been amazing to experience, to be honest with you. You crossed my feed on NFL Chargers Media Day because I think you did an interview with Justin Herbert. What, what, do, you, what do you make of Herbert's transition, and uh, did you talk Oregon-Oregon State rivalry with Herbert when you saw him? <laughs> just a little bit, man. Uh, just a little bit. It's actually crazy. I, we were talking before we started rolling the cameras, and just – you know, just to see the growth that he's had. I mean, I was, last time I played was when he was a freshman. And I remember a couple times in that Civil War 2016 that we ended up winning, but there's a couple throws that he made, and I was like, there's no way this kid is a freshman. There is no way. Um, he was a fantastic athlete, obviously smart, great kid. And then when I talked to him for media day, it was funny because we did bring it up. He laughed a little bit. Uh, we obviously knew some of the same people. But, man, I'm telling you, I, I always say this on air is that, there's something about Justin. I, I really just want him to, to crack out of the shell just one time. Yes. I know, I know he loves fishing. I know he's a, uh, a funny guy, hilarious guy. Everyone says it. And I was just trying to get him to come out of the shell a little bit. But, man, I'm going to tell you, he was media trained down to the T. So um, we had a great conversation about ball, but uh, I, I couldn't get any, any, funny, uh, any funny bites out of him. Let me ask you this, because people asked me this as the draft was coming. They said, you know, you've interviewed him. He's not a vocal guy. He's not a rah-rah guy. You know, can he be a leader? Where do you stand on that for a quarterback who maybe isn't rah-rah, doesn't like, like doesn't prefer to be the center of attention, and yet is the center of attention? 
Yeah, and it was really interesting because during Chargers Media Day, my coworkers and I, we you know, we kept asking a lot of the guys, Austin Eckler, uh, Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, what is it about Justin that makes him such a great leader, even though he doesn't talk and all of them said the same thing of the kid is not only talented, but he leads by example. You know, he, he's going to be the first one in, last one out. He's one of those guys that will bring everybody together. And we might not see it in the media of him, you know, doing all the rah-rah, yelling, screaming, talking. But, you know, what they were saying is he's about as competitive as anybody on the field. You see him out there, man, and, and you could tell. And so there's something that's interesting about that that he won't tell you, but you could see it in his game and the guys understand it. And I was one of those same people saying, I'm not sure how Justin's game is going to translate. Now, I thought about deleting that tweet so I didn't look like I didn't know what I was talking about, but I had to stand on it, man. And, and Justin's definitely proved me wrong. I'm sure he's proved a lot of guys wrong. And obviously we see him now with the contract that he has and the talent that he has, that he is, he is about as good of a leader as you can get. I had coffee today with J.D. Wicker, the athletic director at San Diego State, and you know it's evident that they thought they were going to the Pac-12 conference on that fateful Friday. And what was that like in your footprint as the San Diego State fans were kind of watching their path into the Pac-12 evaporate on that Friday? Yeah, and it was very interesting because I think a lot of us in, uh, here in San Diego, and to be honest with you, everybody that follows the Pac-12, was kind of just waiting to see how everything was going to shake out, especially with UCLA and USC leaving. We thought, okay, you know, let's bring San Diego State in. Their football program has seen success. Basketball team just went to the national championship game. I mean, it would be fantastic for San Diego to come into the Pac-12, but then everything kind of just dissolved, and we were all kind of left with our heads scratching a little bit, saying, what just happened? You know, we were all playing in the sports office to say, okay, cool, we were looking at the schedules. Uh, let's see how San Diego State is going to do when they take on Colorado, when they take on Washington. But then that all evaporated, and now San Diego State comes right back to the to the Mountain West. And I think we're all just thinking it might have been the right move for them to come back. Marcus, they'll go to, to Research Stadium. You know what that experience is like. This team this season with Brady Hoke coaching, they've struggled a little bit up front. And I know they got some new guys in, in on that defensive front, but what what do you see happening from a football analysis standpoint? You know, last week against UCLA, what's the problem right now at San Diego State? I think the biggest thing that, that the Aztecs need to figure out is their identity offensively. I think defensively they've always been great. Brady Hoke is a great coach uh, and a great football mind, and he will be honest with you, and he'll tell you he's got to get the offense figured out somehow. Now they have former uh, San Diego State quarterback Ryan Lumley as their new offensive coordinator they have Jalen Maiden uh at quarterback right now they call him Moose the kid's 6'3 about 215 pounds extremely athletic has a good arm but he played safety last season for most of the season and then switched to quarterback and as you know this is college football you can't almost just switch by the but you know you can't just flip a switch and, and come play quarterback and be extremely successful now the kid does have a lot of talent I just think right now the Aztecs don't have the firepower or, as I like to say, the horses in the stable offensively in order to compete with some of these guys right now. Now, it's going to take a little bit of time. they got to find some weapons on the outside. They had a lot of really good guys graduate and move on. But as of right now, they just don't have that that identity. San Diego State's known for that tough-nosed football. Like I said, on the defensive side of things and on offense, they were known to run the football. But these past couple games, they've struggled big time, especially against a team like Idaho State where they struggled to run the ball. So as of right now, they just need to find some offensive identity. 
and they got to get something going, get the easy passes going for your quarterback, Jalen Maiden, and get him comfortable. Against UCLA, he threw three picks, and I would say two of those weren't his fault. But, again, if you want to win football games and if you want to go up against these Pac-12 teams, man, you got to play about as sharp as you can throughout the season because these teams down the Pac-12 are really good. Unfortunately, it's the last season. That's a topic for a different time. But we see what the conference is this year, and anytime you take on a team like Oregon State, you got to bring your best ball. This uh, series with Oregon State is a home-and-home home series, so the Beavers will play at Snapdragon Stadium, I believe, next season or maybe two seasons from now. But regardless, give me an idea of that stadium. What is, what's it like? You've been there. Uh, you know, Give us a scouting report on that stadium. It's a super beautiful stadium, and I think the, what I like about it is that it's raw right now. And what I mean by that is that they put it together – and, we're, and the way we see it is that we can see the expansion that they have, and I think that was the whole idea of Snapdragon Stadium. Of They wanted to be able to expand. And now San Diego has an MLS team coming in 2025. There's an opportunity for it to expand. And I, I think it's, again, state-of-the-art. Uh, once you take out, once they took down Falcom, I think a lot of people were scratching their head trying to figure out what the new home for San Diego State will look like. And I think it's perfect with Snapdragon Stadium. I want to say... The grass on the field is the most important thing for me as a former player. I've been on the field. I felt it, man. It is about as good as it gets. So Aztecs are lucky that they have a beautiful place like Snapdragon because I know a lot of places don't really have that and a lot of places don't have grass. And as we saw just a, a few days ago with Aaron Rodgers, that grass is, is pivotal. Yeah, give me an idea there because you, you, the players are coming out saying, uh, you know, natural grass versus turf. You've played on both. You've had knee injuries. Yeah, I, to be honest with you, grass for me, it, it just it's just a little easier, and it's almost too hard to describe why it is, but it's softer on your legs. And, and, and John, man, I'm only 28, but when I'm running out on turf, I'm feeling like I'm 60. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy. But when you run on grass, it just I feel like it gives you that extra cushion that you need for your knees. And on top of that, man, it just feels so much better when you get, as crazy as it sounds, when you get tackled and brought to the ground, it sounds and it feels a whole lot better. Marcus, I'm predicting a pretty solid Oregon State win. I Nothing against San Diego State, and I said it to J.D. Wicker right into his face. I said, you know, I just think Oregon State is so much better right now. They might be the best team in the Pac-12. Uh, time will tell, but uh, San Diego State, Oregon State, tomorrow, do you have a game prediction? Ah, uh, Man, I said Oregon State by three touchdowns. Again, I think San Diego State will always put up a good fight because that's their identity. But the way Jonathan Smith has these guys playing right now with the offensive line as great as it is, the run game as talented as it is, and Coach Smith putting his guys in positions to make the plays like he has, I think that's going to be the key factor there. And, again, if you want to beat Oregon State, you got to play your best ball. I'm not sure San Diego State is going to be able to compete for four quarters, but I'm saying Oregon State by three touchdowns. Yeah, I feel about the same. Hey, I have Anthony Gold, the wide receiver, on later in the show. Is there anything I should be asking him? Like, plant me a question here. What would you? What would you, uh, as a, you know, as a former Oregon State player, want me to ask Anthony Gold? Man, there's a, there, there could be a few things, but I'll, I'll give you this: you got to ask him how many punt returns are we going to get from him this season because <laughs> that kid is about as talented as it comes with, as a return man, and I want to see it. I tell him sometimes he's got to take some hits, man, but. I need to see him. I need to see him get two or three punt returns for me this season. So I would say just ask him how many punt returns he's going to get. And if he says none, give him my number, my man. I want to talk. All to right, him. all right, you're on. <laughs> all right, Marcus, I appreciate you. 
Good to hear your voice. Congrats on the work down there. People want to catch up with Marcus. You can get him on Twitter, of course, and check him out in San Diego on CBS 8. Marcus, thank you. Hey, thank you so much, man. Have a blessed one. Great talking to you. All right, good to talk to you. There you go. Anthony Gold will be with us later in the show. And uh, he did not play last week. Had an undisclosed injury during practice last week. We'll find out. He had a le- he had a leg injury late last season. So I'll ask Anthony Gold coming up what's going on with him. And uh, he you know he played in the opener against San Jose State, but did not play in week two. That interview is presented by Jamba. Life is better blended. Anthony Gold coming up. Well, I posted a poll this morning. Was it uh, Colorado State coach Jay Norvell? Who poked the bear yesterday? Well, is it wise strategy what he did or unwise strategy? 1,433 people have voted. There's 14 hours left in the poll, so anything could happen. But of the 1,433 who have voted, 68.7% say unwise. Jay Norvell poking the bear this week. Colorado State playing Colorado tomorrow in a football game that um, will draw a lot of eyeballs and a lot of attention. Shador Sanders uh, speaking out about it. Plus, you'll hear from Dan Lanning and Jonathan Smith, all in Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, it's just yesterday that Jay Norvell said that he takes his hat and his sunglasses off. That's uh, what his mother told him to do when he's talking to adults. Shador Sanders, the quarterback at Colorado, says Norvell's got to be a fool. Punch it. You got to be a fool to do that. <laughs> you got to be a fool to do that. You got, you got his son playing quarterback and his other son playing uh, safety. So it's like... Come on now, you asking for it? <laughs> so you you looking you looking to drop another four five on them? Huh? Nah, it's just, it's just extra motivation. Extra motivation. That's what it is. Like you know, during a week, during a week, during a week, we have a we have a uh, great approach to the game. But then when you make it like overly personal, like we respect the team, respect uh, the opposing players. But now whenever you make it that, then it's all respect gone. Look, Colorado wakes up looking for disrespect. Matt Rule, the coach at Nebraska, stood at midfield. He was just watching Colorado warm up. And Shador said last week he thought that was disrespectful. So when you give them something extra, be sure they're going to grab a hold of it. Will it matter that much? I don't know. Colorado State not that good. And Jay Norvell may be in for a, uh, a rude awakening tomorrow. Or maybe Colorado's not that good. We'll find out. Uh, on the same topic, though, you know, I've been thinking a lot. You know, is it possible Deion Sanders is in this for Shador? Meaning, when Shador Sanders becomes draft eligible in the NFL, does Dion go to the NFL? Mike Florio and Dan Patrick kicked it around today. Punch it. You, I think, are on the Deion Sanders bandwagon, aren't you? Of could he be the next head coach of the Dallas Cowboys? I would hire him to be the head coach of an NFL team if I was the owner and I was looking for a coach. Look, at the end of the day, and people say, oh, that style won't work on NFL players. Baloney. When I hear Deion Sanders speaking to his team, I'm 58 years old. I want to get up and run into the wall. Now, I won't run through the wall. I'll bounce off of it. But if it motivates me, how's it? It's going to motivate football. I mean, we all have a desire, Dan, 
to, to have someone reach into us and press that button that makes us go out and be great. And that's what Dion has. I think it would be especially interesting to see him go into a team or a franchise that traditionally has not had a lot of success or has struggled to draw fans in some cases. Keep an eye on that. Colorado knows it's not keeping Deion Sanders for a long time. He's in it for right now. Jonathan Smith, on this show, I asked him what he saw on film when it came to San Diego State. Punch it. Yep, uh, they, they attack. It's like an attack front. The movement on defensive line uh, going to challenge you. Not, uh, not, they got some different looks that you don't see week in and week out defensively. That showed up. I think offensively they make the thing physical. I think the quarterback is gifted in regards to his athleticism, can make some throws. They're right in that game. I know it, it was lopsided at the end of the, the score, but they got the ball on the one foot line going in. They turned it over another time. They turned it over on the one yard line, and then they turned it over another time. That's a different game if they uh, you know, execute at that point. Look, uh, San Diego State does not have the physicality to stay in this game against Oregon State. Defensively, they graduated their front three. That's where they gave people problems last year. Those guys are all in the NFL, by the way. Brady Hoke doesn't have those guys on this team. Oregon State, be clear, is going to run the ball. They are going to run and run and run, and DJ will keep them honest, throwing passes. But I see a big Oregon State win over San Diego State tomorrow, 1230, Reeser Stadium. Dan Lanning, Oregon coach, what's he looking for? Improvement in week three. They have Hawaii at home. The Ducks are at home. And 2-0. and Here's Dan Lanning. Punch it. Yeah, really the things that we just targeted, right? One, we can't beat ourselves, right? And I think part of being here at home with a great environment from our fans is going to be a big part of that. Um, but that, playing a clean game and playing with the physicality that we know we're able to play with. The physicality, but a clean game. I'm looking for fewer penalties. And I'm looking for an offense that doesn't rely upon Bo Nix to kind of run around and make plays. I also would hope that Oregon could get out of this game against Hawaii without showing too much, without flexing too much, without going too deep into the playbook. Because unlike Colorado, who had to show a whole bunch against Nebraska and a whole bunch against TCU, I think there's a lot of what Oregon is that is still undetermined and unseen. Adrian Wojnarowski talking about Damian Lillard. Could he possibly sit out to start the season? Woj thinks no. Punch it. I think the NBA has made it clear uh, in you know another iteration of the rule changes, the resting policy, you know that the idea that a player can just be parked away from the team, waiting, awaiting a trade, uh, that that's not a scenario that's acceptable anymore in the NBA. I think a return of Damian Lillard to start the season. You know, there are far less complications based on where the Blazers are in a rebuild than, say, James Harden in Philadelphia, where there's so much pressure on this team winning now and Harden playing at a high level. Look, bottom line, I think Lillard likes the money as much as he likes playing in the NBA. He's not going to want to sit out, not get paid. The Blazers' situation, Lillard says, is uncomfortable, but shouldn't be unprofessional. What does he mean? punch it. I think people expect I think uh, both in Portland and around the league, it will be uncomfortable it may be unpleasant uh, but, it, but it won't be unprofessional and mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, if you bring back a player, certainly of Lillard's stature, who's asked for a trade, you haven't found it, 
That's all you're asking for. You can hope for is professionalism. And I do think they believe they're going to get that from Damian Lillard. Going to get it from Damian Lillard. I still expect Lillard to start the season in Portland. Uncomfortable, but not unprofessional. I like that. Finally, Deion Sanders. Can I circle back? He's talking to Pat McAfee here about Jay Norvell's digs at him. Says he can't wait to play this game. In fact, Colorado can't wait. Punch. How him. much do you use that as motivation? Oh my God! And how much do you <laughs> love? How much do you love it, that that happened? One hundred percent. I don't. I didn't. I don't like that it happened because this is another brother. You know. You know. We started out right. He was complimenting me. I was complimenting him. He was doing his thing. But it just. It just took a quick left. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Who got to him? Like what? What happened? And this to take a left after what he said previously, it threw me off. And I started. I really started to contemplate. What happened? Why would you go to that direction? You know me. Like, you know how I get down. You know, if we really want to talk, I can do this pretty darn good. I'm pretty good at this thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but I don't need to because the kids, uh, they're ready, man. Like, that that just, if it was a trap game, and I don't believe in trap games, my kids now are on a tent. They are ready to play this game, and they can't wait to play this game. We can't wait to get it on. We really can't. Colorado, Colorado State. Big football game ahead. Is Jay Norvell brilliant or stupid, wise or unwise, to throw that out and uh, make that comment, make it about him? Uh, obviously, if you're a uh, football fan, this game, you're going to have to wait tomorrow as this game is not early. 7 p.m. on ESPN. Uh, chip on his shoulder. Colorado's got some flaws. I just don't think Colorado State is the team to exploit them, although... They scored 24 points against Washington State earlier this season. They've got some offense. Keep an eye on that. All right, 4 o'clock hour coming up. Leave it here. Last time I was in Jamba, I got a razzmatazz. Have you tried the razzmatazz, Judah Newby? I've not tried the razzmatazz, but there's a Jamba on my way home, so you can book it. All right, you got to get in there and check that out. Our next guest joins us every week. Oregon State wide receiver Anthony Gold. He is uh, King Jamba this season. He is the guy. This interview is uh, presented by your local Jamba. Life is better blended. Oregon State will be at home on Saturday against San Diego State. That's tomorrow. Saturday tomorrow. This week just kind of snuck up on me. It's that kind of week. Anthony Gold joining us. Has a big football game tomorrow. Give us an idea. Like the day before the game, are you just kind of chilling, like sitting around? Oh yeah, just just hanging out. Usually my family's in town, so I just get get some time to you know hang out, relax with them, and then just focusing on the game, locking in on uh, handling business. Do you sleep well the night before the game? Uh, I kind of get jitters. I wake up a couple times throughout the night. Um, but for the most part, yeah, I sleep pretty well. I try to go to sleep early so that I like getting up early myself. Um, so I like to get up uh, earlier than, you know, what I what I got to be up just so I can, you know, get up and do, you know, my morning rituals of, you know, game day of just, you know, watching a little extra film, um, looking at the playbook, you know, and just really visualizing myself making plays. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I sleep pretty well. Do you, uh, like, uh, DJ... Yoyangalele told me that um, he slept like a baby the night before the San Jose State game, and then he played calm as ever. 
But have you always been an early riser? Are you that kid that, like, we have one of those in our family. We have one of my daughters that gets up crazy early, 5 o'clock in the morning. She's wide awake, and the other ones will sleep to noon if you let them. Oh, yeah, I've always kind of been someone that, you know, I like to get up get up pretty early. Um, I don't know, I just feel like, you know, if I sleep in, um, I feel like I miss out on part of the day. I'm, it's just a weird feeling. I don't like when I, when, I, when I sleep in. So sleeping in to me is probably... Eight thirty nine at the latest. So um, yeah, I'm a, I'm an early riser kind of guy. Last week you did not play undisclosed injury. Why is that important to keep that you know from getting out or getting around? Why you know coaches probably don't talk about it. Is that is that a, a strategic thing or why don't why don't people talk about it? Uh yeah, I think it's just um, you know kind of keep things that happen you know in house in house. Um, but I'd say that's probably the biggest thing is just. You know, if it's not uh, too serious, um, you know, just just don't really talk about it, and you know, it's on to the next week and focusing on you know the next guy that's that's playing. Anthony, will you play this week? Do you have that yet, or uh, do you need to tiptoe around that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I'll probably need to tiptoe around that, but uh, yeah, I'm I'll be playing this week. So okay. What'd you, what'd you think of the punt return that went for a touchdown, or was it a kickoff return? I'm trying to think. It was a special team score. Anytime you see that, and you've been a guy who's been out there for those kind of big plays, punt returns in particular, what's that experience like? Oh, yeah, I mean, it was just awesome to see. You know, uh, you know, Silas hasn't gotten a kick his way this year, and, you know, it was just, it was just a cool thing to, you know, see that for him, um, you know, him being able to experience that, put that on film, uh, but also for the guys, you know, just – you know, there's there's ten other guys on the field that are you know they're blocking their their tails off so that we can even get a chance to return it, and you know just being able to celebrate with with all those guys, um, you know it's it's awesome and it just it just goes to show how you know guys are bought in on all three phases. Um, a lot of a lot of teams, you know, there's there's guys that they don't really they don't really want to play special teams and they look at it as as a negative. Um, but that's not how we do it at Oregon State. Um, you know, if you're on teams, that's your job, and you got to take your job serious. So I think, you know, it's just a great time for Silas um, and and just the the whole team and everyone who's out there uh, being able to experience that because you know it doesn't happen often. So we're talking to Anthony Gold, wide receiver, Oregon State. Uh, we we've gotten a chance to see a little bit of Aiden Childs, and he looks good. Like I, it just looks like mm-hmm. the. Sky is the limit for that kid. You see him in practice. What you know? What what is he? And what could he be at Oregon State? And what could he be as a football player in general? Uh, man, I think that's you know that's a future first round guy. Um, he's a baller. You know, he just turned eighteen, which is which is crazy. But you know, if you met him, you wouldn't think that. Um, I think you know I think the sky is the limit for him. I think you know being in uh, a pro style offense. Uh, like we do, like many NFL teams are, that that would just, you know, really set him up for the future. Um, but, man, yeah, I'm excited to see what the future, you know, Oregon State looks like with, with Aiden at, at the, the helm. And it, he's made some throws that in practice is like, man, like there's not too many people making that throw. So, you know, it's awesome to see. And, you know, he's got time to develop. And I think once – not that he's not already developed, you know, he could go out there and play right now. But, um, you know, once he really gets the system underneath him and – you know, uh, really understands everything in the offense, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be scared. Give me an idea on that, because we hear players say stuff like that. You know, once 
once he understands the system. What are we talking about? Are we talking about the quarterback's ability to make reads, or are we talking about pre-stap that he gets to the line of scrimmage and he understands, like, in you know, just by looking at the defense that you know he needs to check into a different play or a run play? What what are we talking about when we say he understands the system? Yeah, I mean, it's a little combination of, of both. Um, you know, he's got to be able to go out there and have that confidence of, um, you know, being able to, one, recognize coverage, um, two, get up to the line, make sure, you know, guys are where they're supposed to be, uh, right checks are supposed to be made. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot. Play a quarterback in our offense, you know, it's not easy. Um, they're supposed to, you know, you got to – they have to know protections. Um, you know, they're, they're override protections uh, a lot of the time, so – um, having, you know, a, a guy back there who can really think and, you know, understands the game, um, it, you know, you, you really need it, especially in our offense. So uh, once he understands that and just understands, you know, why certain things are happening on certain plays, I mean, he, he's going to be unstoppable. And it's, he, he's working. Don't get me wrong. He, he can go out there and he can he can do some stuff right now. But once he gets that, then, you know, he's, he's playing – you know, worry-free. You don't have to think about anything. It'll just be second nature, and then it's just playing football at that point. Anthony, uh, you look at San Diego State on film. You know, give me a comparison. Do they compare to San Jose State? Are they different than San Jose State? What do you see on film? Uh, yeah, you know, they're different, you know, with the defensive scheme they run. But um, just like San Jose State, you know, they're a good, they're a well-coached team. Uh, they play hard, and, you know, that's what, that's what we're going to get every week. Um, but they run little, little, some stuff uh, differently defensively. Um, special teams, they have, you know, they have a good punter over there um, and kicker. Um, so it's it's a little bit different, but, you know, as long as we go out there and execute and do our job, I think we'll be all right. All right. Uh, you will uh, show up at the stadium. We always see you when you're warming up or we see you, you know, at the game. But give me an idea what happens, like, early game tomorrow, from the time you wake up, like at what hour do you sort of enter the football ecosystem and start your game day preparation? Uh, really, as soon as you wake up, you know, with the early game tomorrow, it'll be wake up, um, eat some breakfast, and then straight into you know meetings and walkthroughs, and um, you know, really just tightening up the detail uh, for the game, and then it's straight to the stadium, and you know, warm up and you play. So it goes by pretty fast, but. Um, it's pretty nice because you're not in the, the hotel all day just sitting there watching other people play or yeah. um, just weighing around all day until, you know, 6 or 7 at night when you're playing. So the early games are nice because you get to just wake up, eat, and then it's, it's straight the ball. I'll tell you this. As a writer who's covering the games when I'm there, I don't like the sitting around either because it's a mental drain. And I can't imagine right. from a physical standpoint, like if you have to sit around for 8 or 10 hours watching football, especially when you're on, you're on the road, right? You're in a hotel, and maybe the coach will get you up and have you guys kind of do kind of some walkthrough stuff and get you moving around a little bit. But, man, that, that it turns into a long day. I'm glad you're playing a game in the daylight. It'll be fun to see you out there. I'll try to say hi to you if I see you on the field in the pregame. But, uh, all right, postgame Jamba, what's your drink tomorrow? Let's say early evening, you're in recovery mode. You walk into the Jamba. You, you got a drink you'd turn to? Um... I think it, it might just be that white gummy again. You know, okay. there's. Have you tried it yet? I haven't. The next time I'm in, I'm uh, going. I'm, yeah. I'm telling you, you got to try it out. All right. We'll not white. That, that, white. White gummy. gummy. All right, Anthony. I'll see you at the stadium. Thank you, man. Oh uh, yeah, yes sir. Thank you.
All right, there he is, Anthony Gold. This interview brought to you by Jamba. Life is better blended. Good stuff. I got I got to get in there and try the white gummy. Judah, have you tried the white gummy? That you got to try that instead of the razzmatazz now. <laughs> Add it all to the short list, man. That sounds delightful. What a great name, white gummy. The white gummy at Jamba. I'm googling it right now. It is a peach and uh, pineapple smoothie. All right, I'll go for that. Mm. I like that with a little uh, pineapple sherbet and vanilla soy milk. You like that? So there you go. That's in it. Six ounces of peach juice, soy milk, a scoop of lime sherbet, a scoop of raspberry sherbet. There's your razzmatazz. A scoop of pineapple sherbet, a scoop of orange sherbet, a scoop of strawberries, and ice. And then they blend it. And there you have it. All right. G-U-M-M-I. Yeah, gummy. Because I kind of felt like it sounded like you know, I'd be going into, like, a dispensary if I was ordering a white gummy. Exactly. You know, I, that should be a trivia question. Like, where do you get a white gummy in the state of Oregon? You get it at your nearest dispensary. You don't go to Jamba, but turns out you can get it at Jamba. Um, hey, give me an idea. Like, coaches get weird with injuries. Anthony Gold did not play last week, and this happened with Jaden Grant last year at one point. You know, he was out. He had gone to the hospital he came on this show the week after going to the hospital and kind of kept it on the down low. And then I found out he was in the hospital. We talked about it on air, but he pretended the whole time like he was playing. Anthony did it to us last week. He had had a injury during practice, and yet he came on the show and he was like, you know, can't wait for the game against UC Davis, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, go get your white gummy at Jamba. And now he's saying he's playing this week, but... I feel like, you know, even Jack Coletto did that. Remember when Jack Coletto did that last year? He had a game where he wasn't playing, and he came on air, and he was like, you know, I'm uh, I'm probable. And then he ended up not playing in the game due to injury. Yeah, it's weird. And, you know, normally I feel like Jonathan Smith programs would be pretty, you know, open and honest because they're comfortable who they are and in their own skin. But I tell you what, guys like Coletto last year and definitely guys like Gold this year, like those guys are playmakers. It definitely influences the game plan from the opponent. And you heard the way Anthony was talking about special teams. They take that serious in Corvallis. And Anthony is such a big part of that special team return unit that that factors into how, you know, Brady Hoke is preparing and all that. But uh, I'm glad that he said, yeah, I should probably tiptoe around it, but I'm playing. I'll be there. (laughs) I I know. I think it's interesting that they do that. But, you know, I guess it – I think in some ways it ends up being – I think a bigger advantage when it's kind of a conference game, like, you know, they're playing Washington State, but they don't talk about it as an injury. And even Bo Nix in, in Oregon, I mean, Dan Lanning had this injury to Bo Nix. He wouldn't talk about it all season long or, you know, it kind of just dragged on. But I guess part of the reasoning for that is you don't want opposing defensive players to know what the injury is so you can you can uh, keep them from, like, grabbing your ankle at the bottom of the pile or try and do a – you know, target that injury to to keep you out further. Um, you know, I said this today. I you know, I mentioned earlier I had talked with J.D. Wicker, who is the athletic director at San Diego State. I had coffee with him today, and we just kind of talked about the Pac-12 conference, San Diego State's standing in the conference. You know, uh, in the Mountain West, and their hope that they were going to be included as part of the Pac-12 and it became evident to me in talking with him that they really felt like they were into the Pac-12. And I think they're happy, really happy to be part of the Mountain West. And they have a good spot there now. But I do get the sense that if Oregon State and Washington State can rebuild the Pac-12, 
that there would be some interest from San Diego State in in exploring whatever that could be one day. And, you know, I won't speak for J.D. Wicker or San Diego State, but it's just the sense that I got in having a conversation with him that the brand of the Pac-12 still holds some oomph for the Mountain West Conference members. And by the same virtue, if you are a Washington State fan or an Oregon State fan who is looking at the Mountain West, you, you definitely, you know, view going to the Mountain West Conference as relegation. Like, there's no way around it. You're you're being relegated to a lower conference. It's a group of five conference. And and even if you're left behind in the Pac-2, and I do think this is the plan for Oregon State and Washington State. I think they're going to go with a full rebuild. I think that they're going to get they're going to come to an agreement with the outgoing 10 members on some division of, "Hey, here's the money that everybody's getting this year and you guys are out July 1, 2024." Anything that is part of the conference beyond that belongs to the members who are staying behind. I don't think there are going to be any any difficult decisions there. I think everybody kind of understands that's what happens to the conference as it as it dissolves. But I think that the Pac-2 are going to try to make a run of it. And, you know, as I have talked to athletic directors, multiple athletic directors in college football in the last week or so, the, I, I have been drilling down on the idea of how difficult is it to schedule games. Could Oregon State and Washington State find enough games for 2024 and then start to add members in 2025? And if they're going to add members in 2025, is it a reverse merger of the full Mountain West Conference? Is it just some teams? Is it picking and choosing? What is that, you know, in, in that summer, basically, before the 25 football season? You know, what, it, what does it really amount to? And, you know, what I gathered is that Oregon State and Washington State both have a non-conference schedule that is uh, that is already in the books. You know, these teams schedule for years out. And I think Oregon State and Washington State would essentially just look at, if we look at the 2024 season, you know, Oregon State's got three non-conference games that are already on the books for 2024. They are playing Idaho State at Boise State, home against Purdue, I think you add a home-and-home series with Washington State to get you to five games in the 2024 season. Now you have to turn to the scheduling consult, and there is a guy in Austin, Texas, who handles all these football schedules, and you say, hey, look, we're trying to add five games. Where do we find five football games? And it could be that you know some of the games they have to add are playing Big Sky Conference teams for payday games. It could be that they find that the outgoing Pac-12 members uh, such as uh, Oregon, Washington, UCLA, and USC are looking for games. Are Cal and Stanford looking for games? I mean, there is right there, there are six possible teams on the West Coast, and you only need five games. And so, you know, there's a chance here that I think they are going to be able to put together and piecemeal together a schedule for the 2024 season that gives them a full football season if they choose to remain a conference of two. And then for 2025, maybe what you start looking at, if you're Oregon State and Washington State, is you start looking at, okay, do you want to add Colorado State? Do you want to add Air Force? Do you want to add San Diego State? Do you want to add, who else, Boise State? Do you want to add Fresno State? I mean, there's five schools right there that I named that you'd probably be interested in. How about UNLV as a sixth to get into Vegas? Suddenly now, you know, maybe you don't make it a full-blown merger or reverse merger maybe you are picking and choosing who comes in in 2025 and 2026 and all of a sudden do you have something here 
And I, and I think that's kind of going to have to be the way that Oregon State and Washington State, if they're going to do a rebuild, that's going to be the way they have to live. They're going to have to come up with a schedule. And then in the other sports, in the sports like basketball, baseball, football, golf, volleyball, you turn to the Mountain West Conference, you turn to the WCC, you turn to the Big West, and you say, let's do a scheduling uh, partnership where our women's basketball teams are playing you know, in the Mountain West or they're playing in the WCC, or and then you go to your other sports. So you come up with some scheduling partnerships that work for you to try to get through 2024. And the reason why the assets matter that are buried in the conference, the reason why they matter is because you need that money if you don't have a media rights deal. So is there uh, 60 million? Is there 100 million? Is there 200 million? We don't know. And that's what needs to be determined here as they come to some kind of settlement and figure that out. But uh, really interesting conversations I've been having with a multitude of ADs. Some of them are the athletic directors at departing Pac-12 schools who are saying, this is what I would do if I were Oregon State, Washington State. And I don't see, I don't, I'm not hearing a lot of allergy to the idea of them being able to construct a schedule. I had one person tell me that, look what we did during the pandemic. Like, we put together a bunch of schedules and everybody kind of adapted and, you know, there's a chance that you could lean into a 2024 college football season that would be like unlike anything ever seen before. And it could feature um, a multitude of home games, for example, for Oregon State. If you're not part of a 8 or 10 or 12 or 16 or 20 team conference, it doesn't limit the amount of home games you could play. So Oregon State could just go, we're going to play eight home games in 2024 or nine home games. This is going to be who we are. Uh, or they could barnstorm and go, hey, we're going to go anywhere, any place, any time. We feel good about our football program. So there's a lot of flexibility that exists for those programs as it moves forward. All right, coming up, uh, you're going to hear Nick Saban, who fielded an awesome question as part of his coach's show. You're also um, you're also going to hear Anna as she joins the show. You got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. Anna is in the studio. I say that like uh, like parents are around, uh, but that's not what I mean. I just I kind of want to identify her so when she starts talking, you're like, holy hell, was she there the whole time? She has just walked into the studio. She uh, went to curriculum night at our kids' <laughs> elementary school last night. I went to curriculum night as well. I was very interested in whether or not our kids have clean desks. Like, what does the inside of their desk look like? I don't know what you were there for. But that's one of the things I was into. Like, how, do they keep a nice pencil case? And you know? what was your assessment? They uh, they cleaned up for us, yeah. clearly. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's what I thought. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and what were you there for? Why is curriculum night a big deal at an elementary school? I don't know. We're just supposed to go and listen to what our kids are going to be learning. It's important to me because it's like... This is where they're going to be spending the majority of their time yeah. the next several months. And, uh, yeah, I'm a little curious to see my what My parents didn't learning. know where my school was. Yeah, I know. You know? Times are different. <laughs> Times there was no, are different. There was no curriculum night at my elementary school. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My parents were like, what grade are you in <laughs> these days? That's how it went. What's amazing to me is that we're sitting in, like, a second-grade classroom, and the rock star of a teacher is going through, really, like, all the curriculum they will be learning in math, science, reading, writing throughout the year. And I'm like, wow, this sounds really complicated. I don't remember second grade being this hard, you know, like, the stuff they're going to be talking I think about. They're, I think they're accelerating everything. 
I, I think these kids are learning stuff now. They're doing uh, like, I'm not times tables coach... in the first grade? Come I on. know. I'm not going to be able to coach math after about fifth grade. It might be sooner for me. Um, <laughs> hey, I want to bounce something off you, a couple things off you uh, that happened in sports okay. that I think you would be qualified to talk about. Eagles last night beat the Vikings on Thursday night football in a game that was kind of a snooze. But yeah. Nick Sirianni, the coach of the Eagles, Wait, caused... why was it a snooze? Because it was not, like, scored, like, it was lopsided or what? You were at curriculum night. I know. Okay? I was paying attention to the game. Yeah. And I went, ah, eh, curriculum night is more interesting. Okay. So I that's, that's why it was a snooze. But okay. Nick Sirianni, as I uh, wanted to talk about, you're interrupting me. Nick Sirianni... Please had two players on the sidelines that had kind of a tense exchange during the game. Okay. Okay, and <laughs> just trying to get to the story here. I want to get two things into this I, segment. I, okay? I'm allowed to ask questions. Why was it a snooze? Why, this, I, this is not like a monologue, right? Uh, no, it? but anybody who I saw the game. Well, Judah, maybe somebody didn't watch the game. Yeah, but if they didn't watch the game, they don't care about the game. <laughs> Why would I tell them about a game they don't care about? Fine. Go away. People who... Continue with your point. People who cared about that game last night yeah. were already know. Okay. You know, they know all about it. Okay. okay. 34-28. I didn't think it was that great of a game. Okay. Okay, there's okay. some points, I guess. <laughs> but, you know. Um, Go on. There's a bunch of things I could talk about as it pertains to sports, but this is something you could talk about. Okay. Okay. Eagles head coach Nick Sirianni. There was an exchange between uh, two of his players, A.J. Brown and Jalen Hurts, okay. on the sideline. Okay. Cameras caught it. Everybody yeah. saw it. Okay. okay. Sirianni even kind of went over to play mediator at one point. Okay. Okay. These players, and this is not unusual. Players have words sometimes. You can tell there's a problem on the sideline. But then after the game, reporters are asking Sirianni about it, and he at first tries to say, like, he didn't see it. And then they were like, well, you actually kind of played mediator. <laughs> okay. And then he said, well, I'll let you listen. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I didn't, I, didn't see, uh, I didn't see what was going on with that. We we're just trying to manage the game. You were part of the TV show that you kind of interjected there. Okay. Uh, what, what did you have to say to AJ and Jalen? I guess yeah, the, the conversations we have on the field are going to be private. And the conversations we have in in, per, in, uh, in our locker room are going to be private. Uh, Y'all don't need to know what was going on right there. All right. Is he right? No. <laughs> He's not right. <laughs> not, not, no, not at all. Like, maybe the locker room, if cameras aren't present. But when you're on an NFL sideline and you've got parabolic mics aimed in your direction uh, throughout the entire game... I don't know that there's an expectation of privacy in those conversations. What do you think? I think he should just say, guys have disagreements. It's not unusual. You know, we uh, we talked about it. We'll, we've worked it out. These guys are teammates. They're both competitors. This stuff happens in the heat of competition. Hell, you see it all over the league. And move on. And I think people would have accepted that. But now I think... You know, there's kind of like, a, is there a problem there? Do these two guys not like each other? I don't like the uh, a coach pretending that we didn't see what we saw. And I didn't like it first that he said that he didn't see it. And then the guy says, well, it looked like you went over and interjected. <laughs> and then he was like, okay, you caught me. Now I'm going to tell you 
But I kind of like the idea of being able to, in any scenario, tell anybody, you know, what's said between me and somebody else is our business. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Well, you can like that idea. And I'd be like, you'd be like, you know, what were you saying to our kid's teacher? Well, uh, that's uh, between me and the teacher now. Okay. You know? I, I just, I, Bobby Knight pulled this one time. What? Okay? He had words with another coach uh-huh. in the handshake line when I was covering the team 1999. Okay. Okay. He had words, and some one of the reporters in the post game said what was said, and he Bobby Knight said he didn't deny it, he didn't like pretend nothing happened. He said if I wanted you to know, I would have taken the microphone and said it on the microphone. <laughs> well, I I appreciated that better than the Sirianni thing. Yeah, but like okay, that's fine, and you can want that, but can you really have a reasonable expectation of privacy? between people having a conversation, especially if it's heated, when there's cameras floating all around and microphones aimed at your direction? I would argue no. So what would be, like from a PR standpoint, the right way for Sirianni to handle it? Because here's how it goes down. I'm going to play it again so people can hear it. Yeah, um, I don't know. I didn't see see what was going on with that. We're just trying to manage the game. You were part of the TV show that you kind of interjected there. Okay. Um, what, what did you have to say to AJ and Jalen? I guess Guys, the, the conversations we have on the field are going to be private, and the conversations we have in in, per, in, uh, in our locker room are going to be private. Uh, y- y'all don't need to know what was going on right there. This causes, for me as a media member, yeah, this causes mistrust because he just lied. Right. He first said, you know, he didn't know he was managing the game. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, well, you interjected, and then he went, okay. Like, you got yeah. me. You got me. Yeah. I mean, we just all, yeah. you all have a collective eye roll yeah. listening but, to but, that. But I now, anytime he tells me something, I now got to wonder if he's telling me what's true. Because mm-hmm. he wasn't honest. If he had been honest there and just said, disagreements between players happen. Mm-hmm. These guys are competitors. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. Anybody in my locker room, they all want to win. We are on the same page. You see this kind of stuff with players who are competitive and want to win, these guys love each other, we'll be fine. Yeah, and I would even go a step further. I mean, it's kind of like I would I would liken it to the idea of a family. It's like, hey, we promote the idea that we are a team, we are like a family. Do you ever have heated discussions with family members? Of course you do. If you're working toward the same mission, things are never going to be you know, smooth sailing all the time. You're going to have ups and downs. And further, isn't it better that they're actually talking it out? Like if they're having an issue with one another, if there's something that's, you know, one player is holding the other accountable or trying to raise their level of play by pointing out something that, you know, it's constructive criticism. Like these are the kinds of things that happen. These are the real conversations that happen between people that are all striving toward a a common goal. Another controversy that happened during the game, Vikings are driving towards the end of the second quarter as halftime is approaching. And, you know, Kirk Cousins throws a pass to Justin Jefferson who catches the ball in the second quarter. And as he's being tackled, he reaches the football out to try to hit the pylon or cross the goal line and get the touchdown, but he loses the ball Mm -hmm. just at the last second. It's ruled a touchback, and it ends the Vikings' drive. Now, they lose this game by six points. Mm. 
they would have been at the one-yard line or the two-yard line with a chance to get a touchdown there. Bunch of people upset about, you know, calling it the dumbest rule in football. You lose possession. The defense has not recovered the ball. Um, and the defense gets, you know, a 20, advance the ball 20 yards out to the 20-yard line. It's a bad rule, say some. But I kind of like it because even though most fumble, any other fumble, any other part of this field, mm-hmm. the, wherever you lose it and if it goes out of bounds, it the ball you retain possession of the ball and it goes back to the spot that you lost it at. Mm-hmm. But if you hit the pylon or the ball goes out of the end zone and it releases from your hand and goes into the end zone, back of the end zone, you'll lose possession. Mm-hmm. I like it because it places a emphasis on valuing the goal line mm-hmm. as a offensive ball carrier. Yeah. You want to reach for the goal line, but not carelessly. Mm-hmm. If you reach carelessly and you're just throwing yourself out and throwing the ball out and you happen to lose it, that's a fumble. And it's the worst kind of fumble because you're within inches of scoring a touchdown. Mm. So I like the rule. Other people hate the rule. Judah Newby, I have to know, what do you think of the touchback rule in that circumstance? You make a good point about valuing the goal line. I, I like that, but I've this has always been my least favorite rule in football is because, you know, you want to see effort and you want to see playmaking. And Justin Jefferson is such a great playmaker, and he's trying to make a play, get to the end zone, and he loses it. And my thing is, like, the defense, yeah, like you said, they didn't recover it. So why give the ball back to the defense when they didn't do the work to recover the fumble? Like, they barely did the work to force the fumble. I was looking at, there's some numbers out there, and these are like a decade old, I guess, so it's not entirely accurate to today, but defenses recover fumbles when they force the fumble about 70% of the time, but they only recover the fumble 45% of the time when it's unforced, when it's just the offensive player fumbling it on his own, unforced by the defense. That's less than half the time the defense actually recovers it. So at that stage of the game, at that part of the field, for an offensive guy just losing it because he's stretching out trying to score on Thursday night football, and, oh, it goes out the back. Oh, and by the way, not just out the back, but it, like, barely went over the pylon. And we're just going to give it to Philly on their own 20 and say, hey, it's a turnover. That doesn't seem like the spirit of the game to me. I, I, I don't want to see players, though, you know, they're close to the pylon, literally throwing the ball at the pylon. You know, they're within a yard or so, and, you know, it could be, if there's no penalty there. And I I, I, I don't want to see that. It, but I also think, like, you've got, as an offensive player, you've got to value the goal line. Yeah. Because you're close to scoring, you better be sure you have the ball in your hand when you go over the line. Because if you lose it a, a yard short and it goes out of bounds, yes, you will retain possession, but if you if the ball goes into the end zone or hits the pylon and goes out of bounds, it's the other team's ball. Can you keep the ball but like get it back at midfield instead of giving it back to the maybe other you should, team? Maybe you should get it, but you have to go back to the twenty. You know, you have sure. to you're twenty yards in instead of at the one foot line. Yeah. You know, that would be enough penalty to keep guys from just because what I don't want is I don't want some guy who's within a yard of the pylon just throwing the ball at the pylon. Right. You know, and I know you would start to see that. You would see guys be like, oh, you reach, you know, because, you know, I'm a foot away, I can get there. A yard away, maybe. Two yards away, let's see. You know, <laughs> like, you know, so you start to see that stuff. But, you know, a, a lot of people in an uproar mm-hmm. on social media about this saying yeah. it's the dumbest rule in football. What, yeah, what, I, would, uh, what would Bill Walsh think? What do you think? He's so analytical. He was, he was, he would probably say, 
hold the football and and uh, quit your whining. S- score the touchdown. You know, don't you know? We got it. They had twenty something seconds left. There was no reason for Jefferson to kind of act carelessly in that scenario. You know, you you gonna run? You're gonna be able to run a play or two there in that scenario. It was a first down. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. Nick Saban ho- hosts a coaching show. Yeah, Alabama coach. Yeah. After by, by, a, by the way, what's a pylon? It's the orange thing. Oh, okay. That is the, you know. Okay, I'm just asking for like, like the 15 percent of the audience that. I don't might think it's 15. Know. 10. See, see why I didn't interrupt? I waited yeah. until you guys talked Thank it you. all out. Thank you. And then I was like, hey, there might be someone the out orange, there with this The orange question. thing that's sticking up on the corner of the end zone. Got it. Thank you. If you're Thank in possession you. of the ball and yeah. you hit the pylon, yeah. that's considered you're in the end zone. Uh-huh. Oh, got it. Okay. It takes away the uh, subjectivity of the official to yeah. say, did you cross the plane there at the corner? They yes. can actually see if the pylon okay. gets dislodged. Got it. Okay. Creates a three-dimensional goal line, so to speak. Great. And sideline. Thank you. Uh, Nick Saban, Alabama head football coach. Yes. Hosts a weekly radio show. It's a coach's show. A lot of these coaches do. They uh-huh. get paid for it. It's especially entertaining when he loses a game. <laughs> You're going to hear one of the calls next. If you're reading me at johnconzano.com, if you got a subscription, a free subscription, or a paid subscription, you know I filed a column today in the middle of the day about the Pac-12 Conference. Pac-12 Conference has uh, got uh, obviously some problems, obviously a lack of leadership, and uh, and uh, you've got uh, you've got uh, George Klyovkov at the center of it. I mean, frankly, the fact that you've got a a uh, conference commissioner who does not show up to the court proceedings on Monday and then writes a letter to Oregon and Oregon State essentially saying, um, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm, I don't have a dog in the fight. I don't, I'm not going to pick a side here. Just sort of underscores the lack of leadership that the Pac-12 conference has had in the last year. I get into a lot more depth, including the idea that Fox... The Big Ten and the Big 12 may not want discovery when it comes to that lawsuit. You can read it at johnconzano.com. All right, Alabama fans are crazy, Anna. SEC fans are crazy. Like, let me give you an example. Once upon a time on the Paul Feinbaum show. Here's a caller. Hey, Cal Turd, you you are just, I don't even have a name for you anymore except Cal Turd. How dare you? say that about Alabama. They lose the game. They lose the game, and they lost it to a good team. The team beat Alabama. But how can you say, after the dynasty took all these years, all these decades, one game is going to mean that Saban's dynasty is over. You're out of your freaking mind, Cowturd. You need to go back to whatever the hell you was doing before you got on the radio. And how dare you call me out? You call me out, you're going to get me back. You hear me, you puck? How dare you? I don't understand the way you act towards... It's, it's Bama. That's what it is. It's Bama. You don't hate any team in this nation except for Bama. And you know why? Because they're better than what you've got. 
Nick Saban is a better man than you are. You could never coach because you don't have a bit of coaching in your body. You have nothing but to sit there and insult and down and, and, and just carry on about everybody that's doing something different than you. You're jealous. That's the bottom line. You're jealous. And Bama's coming back. Bama has not lost. The dynasty is not over. Do you hear me, Countered? Bama's dynasty has just begun. Kiss my butt. Roll Tide. Now, that, that's oh. Phyllis from Mulga, who's, uh, oh, she passed geez. away. She passed away um, just uh, in May. Yeah. So, but that's just to give you an idea of what, like, you know, that's sports radio. In the SEC. Yeah, that raises okay? my blood pressure. All right. We get Mike in Portland. We get Mark in Portland. We get Roy. You know, we don't get we don't get Phyllis from Mulga. Okay. But Nick Saban hosts a coaching show. And he gets Pee-wee, who calls in on the Alabama coaches show. And for people who don't know, Alabama lost a football game last Saturday. Texas beat them 34-24. Number four ranked team beat the number 10 ranked team. That was probably expected in a lot of places, but it is not a happy time. You've had people all week calling for Nick Saban to be fired. He's lost it. It's one game. Nick Saban took a call from Pee Wee on his coach's show, and Pee Wee is always complaining about the offensive line. Here's Nick Saban and how he handles this call. Coach, how are you, sir? Well, Pee-wee, I've been wanting to talk to you all week, man. I mean, we got to firm up the pocket. <laughs> We're setting too soft. We're getting pushed back in the middle. All right, everybody thinks we can't hold up against the blitz, but they're sacking us with four-man rush, one three-man rush. Only one sack came off of a pressure, so I wanted to ask you what the hell's going on. <laughs> well, I believe you covered it all right there, Coach. Nick Saban jumps in front of the question. Brilliant. Wasn't that good? Brilliant. Why is that good in your mind? He stole Pee Wee's Thunder and took the reins back because he knew what was coming. That's, that is, that is really smart. Yeah. That's uh, admirable. How does he have time to host a show during the week? And well, getting... Was that a live audience yeah. that I heard? What but the heck? Quite a few coaches will do that. Wow. Not all, not all, but there's a, like a chunk of coaches who do it. That's how Jay Norvell, the Colorado State coach, got himself in trouble. Yeah. He was doing a coach's show and... You have to understand, it's usually held at, like, some booster's restaurant. Right. Okay? Yeah. That everybody knows. And the crowd is very much partisan crowd. So when Jay Norvell was talking about Coach Prime wearing his sunglasses, yeah. you know, he's got a crowd that's egging him on. Right. And I don't know if people understand that. Like, Jay Norvell's been there in that setting. He's been schmoozing with a bunch of people who are drinking and eating. And who are slapping his back going, go out and beat Colorado. Go beat that guy. He doesn't even take his hat and his sunglasses right. off. You know, it, he's getting that over and over yeah. in front of a live audience. And then he gets up and he starts in on Coach Prime. He's got a very receptive audience in front of him and a lot of confirmation in front of him as mm -hmm. he's saying that. Yeah. He's not looking at people whose jaws are dropping. Right. He's looking at people who are cheering him on yeah, for what he's on. saying. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, but the other thing, going back to Saban for a moment, that's brilliant about what he's doing there is, you know, he's he's he is addressing the criticism that he knows he may receive, not just from Pee Wee, but all the people that Pee Wee, 
I can't even say that with a straight face. All the people that Pee Wee is representing by calling in and trying to hold him accountable. And so there's something rather endearing, if even if it's Nick Saban, about him taking head on, you know, the issues that everybody already can plainly see with that game. Is it bad that I feel bad for Saban? No. Why should you feel bad for Saban? No, but is it I feel bad for Why? I, I feel a little empathy for him as a human being. Okay. Because he's been used to being in this position where he is perfect and he is unflappable. Yeah. And now he's getting to understand how maybe like the 10th ranked coach in the country feels. Like, hey, your team's pretty good, but the number four team beat you by 10 points. Like, he's getting that awakening. Yeah. And I can't think that's easy for him. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that I want to undo it. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm looking at Nick Saban and I'm going, this is new for him. Yeah, but, like, maybe he relishes not having to be in the top spot, you know? Like, hey, I remember working for news stations and having general managers, like the head of the TV station, you know, we would have these conversations as a newsroom, and we'd go, well, we're not number one in the ratings, darn it, you know, how can we be number one in the ratings? And and our leader would say to us, well, actually, sometimes all the pressure of being number one doesn't make being number one that much fun. Sometimes it's okay being, you know, not number one. So maybe there's a part of him that relishes a new role and a new phase. Perhaps. Or he's just really eager to go play South uh, South Florida like he is tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's not, he's not getting Texas tomorrow. But he'll get South Florida tomorrow, and then it gets hard for him because he gets Mississippi, who's pretty good, uh, they're, but they're at home. Then it's Mississippi State, then it's Texas A&M, then Arkansas, then Tennessee, then LSU, then Kentucky, and then he gets an off week against Chattanooga, and then the Iron Bowl. I still think Alabama is a pretty good bet to get to the end of the season with only one loss. Mm -hmm. And where that leaves him, we shall see. Uh, But here's kind of another example of, like, you know, coaches that get in trouble. I mean, here he is at his... uh, at his coach's show talking about Texas A&M. He got busted for this a year ago. This is all bad for college sports. I mean, we probably have, what, 450 people on scholarship at Alabama, whether they're women's tennis players, women's softball players, golfers, you know, baseball players, non-revenue sports that that have for years and years and years been able to create a better life for themselves because they've been able to get scholarships and participate in college athletics. That's what college athletics is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be something where people come and make money. And you make a decision about where you go to school based on how much money you're going to make. You should make a decision based on where you have the best chance to develop as a person, as a student, and as a player, which is what we've always tried to major in. And we're going to continue to do that. And hopefully there's enough people out there that want to do it. But I know the consequence is going to be difficult for the people who are spending tons of money to get players. And you've read about them. You know who they are. I mean, we were second in recruiting last year. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. All right, we didn't buy one player. All right, but I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future. Because- All right, so Saban calling out A&M in mm-hmm. front of his own fan base, he later apologized. Yeah, that's uh, uh, I remember that. And I would question the wisdom of having these kind of shows for coaches because it's yeah. just a lot of fertile ground and a lot of time to fill. I, I mean, it's, it's great for the fan base to get that, you know, up close and personal perspective. But whew. 
Five at, landmines there. Five at five coming up. Uh, we'll talk about the five biggest stories. Anna has just tweeted, if you don't follow Anna, Anna underscore Canzano on Twitter. She has just tweeted that Colorado's sports marketing department should be giving out sunglasses to all of its fans tomorrow. Seven o'clock game, though. Does it work for a night game? I guess it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Just funny. Even cooler to wear sunglasses at night. Jay Norvell, the Colorado State coach. I told him I took my hat off and I took my glasses off and I said, when I talk to grown-ups, I take my hat and my glasses off. That's what my mother taught me. So, you know, they're not going to like us no matter what we say or do. It doesn't matter, okay? So let's go up there and play. And so I, that's just how I feel about it. And there he is. He has poked the bear. Colorado, Colorado State. 7 o'clock ESPN. They're going to have a huge audience. I don't think it'll be 7 or 8 million like they've been getting on Fox for the big noon kickoff. But it's going to be something like 4.8 million, 5 million. It's going to be a big audience for that 7 o'clock window, which is 10 o'clock Eastern time. He's going to, they're going to draw like 4 million viewers. Plus, 4.8 is my over-under. Anna's got the five biggest stories in sports. Judah's got the benchmark. Let's do it. The five at five. The number one story that Anna sees is. Well, you can't argue that Deion Sanders is a marketing genius because he took that sunglasses comment and has now turned it into a whole thing. He gifted all of his players a pair of Coach Prime's signature glasses. (laughs) He not only did that, next level, he went on first take and started handing out glasses to the hosts on first take on ESPN. This is like, this is genius. And so he's taken this comment, he's fueled up his team with it, fanned the flames, made it personal as he says. And everyone's going to be watching this game that no one might have cared about before. Here he is talking to Pat McAfee about Jay Norvell's dig. How much do you use that as motivation? Oh my God! And how much do you love? How much do you love it, that that happened? One hundred percent. I don't. I didn't. I don't like that it happened because this is another brother. You know. You know. We started out right. He was complimenting me. I was complimenting him. He was doing his thing. But it just. It just took a quick left. <laughs> what happened? Who got to him? Like what? What happened? And this to take a left after what he said previously, it threw me off. And I started. I really started to contemplate. What happened? Why would you go to that direction? You know me. Like, you know how I get down. You know, if we really want to talk, I can do this pretty darn good. I'm pretty good at this thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but I don't you know. need to because the kids, uh, they're ready, man. Like, that that just, if it was a trap game, and I don't believe in trap games, my kids now are on a tent. They are ready to play this game, and they can't wait to play this game. We can't wait to get it on. We really can't. His kid, Shadur Sanders, also in an interview saying, uh, you got to be a fool to do what Jay Norvell did. You got to be a fool to do that. <laughs> you got to be a fool to do that. You got you got his son playing quarterback and his other son playing uh, safety. safety. So it's like, come on now, you asking for it. <laughs> so you you looking you looking to drop another four five on him, huh? Nah, it's just, it's just extra motivation. Extra motivation. That's what it is. Like you know, 
during a week, during a week, during a week, we have a we have a uh, great approach to the game. But then when you make it like overly personal, like we respect the team, respect uh, the opposing players. But now whenever you make it that, then it's all respect gone. All respect gone, says Shador Sanders. We'll find out tomorrow night, seven o'clock. Maybe there's some genius in what Jay Norvell's doing. Maybe he's got the Sanders family talking and focused on him and not his team. We'll see. Number two story. Uh, Aaron Rodgers not ruling out a return in the playoffs. He did an interview um, today talking about his successful surgery for his Achilles tendon uh, injury. He says he's dealt with a lot of sadness, a lot of tears, a lot of dark frustration and anger. Uh, but he's also gotten a lot of love and asked whether he sees himself making a recovery and coming back, a, you know, a timetable for return. He said, I think, as Kevin Garnett said, anything's possible. I think what I'd like to say is, uh, give me the doubts. Yes. Give me the doubts. Give me the, uh, the timetables. Give me all the things that you think can, should, or will happen. Because all I need is that one little extra percent of inspiration. That's all I need. So give me your give me your doubts. Give me your prognostications. And then watch what I do. Hell yeah. Let's go. Aaron Rodgers, darkness no more. He's out of the retreat. <laughs> I wish him the best. He's coming back. Uh, it's like a movie. It is a little Yo, Adrian. It feels a little cinematic, yes. Adrian. <laughs> Number three. Uh, well, this is a story that has not yet ended. Jenny Hermoso, the Spanish soccer player. No. That that guy kissed. I thought he got fired. He, yeah, he got fired. He left. Anyway. He Mama Rubiali's got a snicker bar. She got a snicker bar. <laughs> He's not in his job anymore as the head of soccer. In this Spain. is over. The story's done. No, it's actually not because he's under investigation for sexual assault. And Spain's high court ruled today that he's got to stay 200 meters away from Jenny Hermoso. So there's a restraining order in place now. Okay. Yeah. That's good. No, I, I like it. I like it. He's got to, he's not only out, he's got to really stay away. Yeah, he does. All right. Yeah. He good. should be at home with Mama Ruby Alley's anyway. He probably is. He probably is. The number, num- what are what? we on? Three now? Three. Five. Three? Four? No. Five? No, we did. <laughs> okay, now you're screwing me up. We, we did, did Coach Prime, yeah. Aaron Rodgers, three, and we're on number four. We're on four. Yeah, four. Okay. That's what I said. <laughs> Number four. Um, I, I gotta know if this registers at all. Dartmouth's no, men's no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> See, I kind of wondered, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Okay. Dartmouth's men's basketball team filed a petition this week to form a union. Okay. They filed it with the National Labor Relations Board in Boston, Massachusetts. Only the second time a college team has attempted to unionize in the last decade. The first was Northwestern football. They tried that back in 2014. 
and it ended when the national board denied that request, fearing it would create a competitive imbalance. Okay. Uh, this it's just interesting to me. They want to be paid. It's interesting. I didn't know. Did you know Dartmouth's a longtime member of the Ivy League? Yes. Okay. Well, I knew they were in the Ivy League. They're not great as far as the team goes. They yeah. haven't made the tournament since '59. They haven't had a winning record since 1999. Yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting because what like when Northwestern tried to do this, they, as you said, the National Labor Relations Board, mm-hmm. that's a mouthful, declared that it created an, a competitive advantage because it was other schools in the Big Ten Conference were public and Northwestern was private and so Northwestern um, was subject to the board's jurisdiction but the other schools were not and they could not be forced to be unionized Mm. okay this is interesting because this is different because the Ivy League schools are all private Mm -hmm. and so the justification for rejecting the Northwestern Union would not apply because Dartmouth is not in a conference with public schools. Therefore, the ability to unionize would be available to mm. all the Ivies. Interesting. So, and, and just leave it to the smart kids to fix sports. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's what this is about. I, that's kind of how I read it. Oh, they were so smart. Northwestern can't win a damn thing. They tried. They tried to get the union off the ground. They forgot they were in a conference that had Ohio State in it. But then Dartmouth went. Well, we're not. Between Colgate and Harvard and Yale, <laughs> we'll get this done. Well, I just thought, I think it's interesting in light of all the discussion we've had about college athletes eventually getting paid and NIL and where everything is headed. I um, have been really trying to drill down on, on this one idea. Like somebody asked me, it's one of the questions that's in the Saturday mailbag. And so when you submit a question for me online or I uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, or if you subscribe to me at johnconzano.com, I I do a Saturday mailbag, and this is just evidence that when you submit a question, I go looking for the answer because I didn't have the answer to this question. Somebody asked me Chip Kelly's whole rant about breaking football away yeah. from everything. Somebody asked me how long do you, th- how far in the future do you think that could happen mm-hmm. if it's conceivable? So I started asking. And it turns out athletic directors have been talking about this. They've been talking about this for a year. So this wasn't a unique Chip Mm -hmm. Kelly thing. And I found out they talked about it last year at a summit that they have in Washington, D.C. And they closed the door, and it was just lawyers and the athletic directors. And they eventually figured out by the end of the meeting that trying to separate football invited all kinds of Title IX problems. It invited all kinds of complications. And in some cases... It started to become clear that it invited more problems than it solved. And so the athletic directors tabled it. Chip Kelly, this was not his original idea. It was something that had been talked about for a while by other people. He just sort of took the common sense part of it and put it out publicly. It still makes a lot of sense, but you have to figure out the Title IX piece. How can you separate football? Say, we're going to allow players to be paid. We're going to let football separate but still adhere to Title IX. That is a real problem. And it's why the athletic directors that I spoke with were not optimistic that this could happen anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So 
there may be a case that could be made that college football in its present form with maybe four Power Five conferences or maybe five Power Five conferences, if another can emerge or the Pac-2 can become a Power Five somehow, um, that it probably, this is probably the system for the next 5, 10, 15 years until that Title IX piece can be addressed. Finally, was that five? That was four. Number five. This is five. Uh, this year's Maui Invitational will still happen. Nice. But it is relocating to Honolulu Boo. on Oahu. That keeps the tournament in Hawaii. And, of course, this is while Maui recovers from the deadly uh, fire in August. Um, the Civic Center, where it's held usually. You've been there. In the Haina. Yeah, we were there last December. Um, was not destroyed in that fire. It stood but it is being used as a disaster recovery center. No. And so this is giving the tournament officials, um, you know, want to give the residents some space and time that they need to recover from the wildfires. Um, so it'll go on. You know, the Maui mayor is saying that, you know, they're thankful the tournament's staying in Hawaii. The 18 field on the men's side this year will include UCLA and Gonzaga. There's a real tug of war going on right now in Maui with, Obviously, the need for a lot of people to heal. You know, more than 100 people killed in that fire, uh, still like 60 people missing. And, you know, the, the death toll presumed to be around 200 people, okay? So a lot of healing that has that's way bigger than sports. But simultaneously, you've got businesses in Maui who are going, hey, we need tourism in order to survive or our businesses are also going to fold. And I just saw, I saw Alaska Airlines was doing $99 flights to Maui, and I was like, is it poor form to take a flight to Maui right now? What do you think on that? Like, is it bad form to get on a plane and go to Maui, or are you helping Maui by going to Maui? Um, I don't think it's poor form to go and spend money there. And, st- you know, like the economy still has to keep running in Maui. But I, I certainly understand that the people who live on the island are still in a state of grief after this horrific Yeah, fire. shock and grief. So, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe the answer is to go there, but be sensitive to what people are going through still. Because you are seeing, like, you know, on TikTok, people who are, like, the people who live in Maui who are native Hawaiians are taking videos of people snorkeling, going, how, how dare you? How can you be snorkeling? Mm-hmm. You know, people died in these waters. and But yeah. at the same time, I'm looking at the... Hotels, yeah. the Airbnbs, yeah. the snorkeling outfits that, you know, do business there and right. help the economy go in the restaurants. And I'm going, okay, same time, it's, it's a tricky balance. And, mm-hmm. and Alaska Airlines said it was the Hawaii's Visitor Bureau mm-hmm. that was subsidizing those $99 flights. Like, they oh. were telling people, all up and down the West Coast, I think mm-hmm. the cheapest flights from, like, the Portland area were, like, 129 or 139 mm-hmm. But I just saw it. It crossed my email inbox. It was like, you know... Travel to Maui, help rebuild Maui was yeah. the message. Right. And it was sort of marketing that was done with the Hawaii Visitors Bureau. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's hard. I can't, I, I mean, I can't imagine, I can't imagine being there because we were there in December and we were in that area that was just decimated by the fires. And I, I can't imagine what those people have been through. Yeah. It's, um, well, that community. And, it, I mean, 
for those who've been to Maui, it's like everyone kind of knows each other on the island, so the the connections are pretty tight, you know, on the island. So, like, everyone probably knows somebody that perished. Or is missing. Yeah. There's, like, 66 people still missing and presumed dead. And the death toll, I think, is at 151, right in that number, right in that range. Yeah. So you're talking about 215, 217 mm-hmm. people that um, passed away plus uh, lost their homes. Yeah. Lost everything. Thank you for uh, coming in for the five at five. Yeah. Appreciate that. Um, we are going to pivot in this next segment. Alex Simon is a reporter at the San Jose Mercury News. Had a really cool story about Andrew Luck, former NFL quarterback, former Stanford quarterback, is now doing something very different. You don't see quarterbacks who have retired go and do this. Simon's going to be with us to talk about it. Plus, I'll give our picks, or my picks for the weekend, the Pac-12 games. I said R. Me and my uh, split personality are going to give the picks for the weekend as the Pac-12 games come. Final answers in the final segment. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. I love good stories. I love stories that go beyond the obvious. I'm also a Bay Area guy, obviously. And so uh, a story written by a, a writer named Alex Simon caught my eye. San Jose Mercury News, one of my prior stops. Great paper, Bay Area News Group. Andrew Luck retired four years ago. And remember when he retired? Andrew Luck, you know, he he'd been all beat up. He was um, he was devastated from several injuries and and struggling a little bit. It sounded like, and Andrew Luck uh, started to talk about the joy being gone. It's taken my joy of this game away, and uh, this. Sorry. Very emotional, Andrew Luck, as he stepped away from football four years ago. What has he been doing since? Well, Alex Simon visited with him and wrote about it. And he's here to talk about it, joining us uh, from the Bay Area. Alex, thanks for making time, man. Thank you for having me, John. It's an absolute pleasure. Give me an idea. Andrew Luck retires four years ago. He says, i got to get away from football. I need to remove myself from football. Looks like you found what he's doing. Why don't you tell our listeners what he's doing and what brought him back? Yeah, he is actually, uh, one, back in the Bay Area, going to the graduate school at Stanford School of Education. He's pursuing a master's degree. And I I would be remiss if I did not give a ton of credit to ESPN Seth Wickersham, who had a phenomenal kind of deep dive talking to Andrew back last December, in which within that story, Andrew talks about wanting to get into coaching at some point, that he wants to teach, he wants to coach. And uh, about a few weeks ago, actually, one of the freelancers who helps us with our high school football coverage kind of almost just as a note tossed it into a story that uh, at Palo Alto High School, which is the school that I know you know this, John, but for your listeners, it is literally directly across the street from Stanford and Stanford Stadium. You can see the lights on at Stanford Stadium from Palo Alto's high school. Uh, they're, they're right there, and Andrew lives nearby, and I guess he reached out in the earlier in this spring and got together, and he's now helping out twice a week while he's going to school as a football coach. And for the most part, he's doing a little bit of help with the whole team, but he's actually mostly focused on kind of the younger players, the freshmen and the sophomores, 
with the JV team, which I found really, really interesting. He retires at 29. Did he give you any sense of he misses the game or maybe just misses the football part and this is a bridge back for him, or, or what is drawing him back? Yeah, Andrew's a really private guy, and even in that ESPN article where he did talk, he, he makes note of how much he doesn't want to talk. He actually didn't talk to us for that story. Um, he was very polite in declining to talk. But in kind of being there, you can kind of see how much this guy really exudes positivity. I mean, he's, these are 14- and 15-year-olds that he's on the field with, and everything is uplifting and encouraging. There isn't, There wasn't really the type of yelling that you sometimes get associated with coaching. And especially, I mean, the parts to me that stood out really noticeably were kind of almost the acts of service he either did himself or was encouraging the players to do. You know, he's taking pennies that go on the top of helmets to denote the scout team guys, and he's making sure the players have them, even putting them on a few guys. He's calling over, you know, the offensive linemen were coming over from a different drill and didn't get time for a water break, and he's asking another player, make sure you bring a couple of water bottles over to get the offensive linemen some water before they get into the next drill so they don't miss this. You know, it's somebody that clearly football has meant so much to him, even if, as he said, and as the clip you just played, to some extent maybe it broke him for a little bit. But this is a sport he clearly loves, and in doing this he's able to give back to it and maybe give back to it in a better way than football treated him at times. Alex Simon is our guest, San Jose Mercury News. Uh, I'll tweet out a link to the piece, but give me an idea. The kids... How did they respond to him, uh, you know, as he's out there on the field? Well, I, I do find it interesting. I talked to one of the JV players who's just a freshman, and I kind of did the mental math in my head that if this kid's a freshman, he's only 15. Do you already go back four years? He was only 11 when Andrew retired. That means he's maybe only 10 when Andrew last played in the NFL. And, you know, definitely not of age to even remember him at Stanford, despite being right across the street. But he's obviously a bigger name. I talked with their senior quarterback, who's their second-year starter, Declan Packer, and he mentioned just how much he was kind of like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And then especially he told maybe the funniest anecdote I had, which was that the first day Andrew got there, he had nothing of the playbook. And by the next day he shows up, he has the entire playbook memorized, knows every term that they use for a play, and was basically able to help them through it. Basically within, I guess that would be two days, effectively. So that's... That's just how Andrew is as a football mind, clearly always been highly thought of in that way. And at least at this one high school where he's helping, they clearly feel that way too. I am left looking around the league as the Jets are without a quarterback and, of course, some other teams uh, have less than desirable starters. Do you have any sense, like, you know, a guy who retired at 29 – you know, he's been out of the game for four years, but, you know, is there any thought that this is a bridge back to the NFL, or is this clearly just a guy who can afford to live in Palo Alto and knows a lot of football and can slide into that role like nobody else? Uh, this, the sense that I got, and again, I will admit, I did not talk to him for this story, but in talking with those who kind of are around there, this is somebody who's at peace with his life now, and the desire to get back on the field did not in any way, shape, or form come through in what I saw. And especially, I mean, going to graduate school at Stanford is not an easy task. I definitely was not able to get into that school myself despite living here uh, for my whole life. So I can't imagine that it's an easy thing for him. 
And, and look, if you go back and read the one story he's really talked to a reporter for, which is that Wickersham story on ESPN, he makes it pretty clear that, you know, he can find ways to be back in love with football without it needing to be on the field playing himself. Hmm. And I think that's very much the takeaway that, you know, even in just observing for the practice or two that I was able to see, that's really the takeaway I have without actually talking to him myself. Give me an idea. You know, there are a lot of programs in the Bay Area that play at a high level. You can go over to De La Salle. You can find a team that, you know, won like 80 games in a row. You, you, can, you can get around the Bay Area and find high-quality football, or you can go to Southern California and find better athletes. Palo Alto High School, you got, you know, apologies to the parents and the kids at Palo Alto High School, but you're talking about the kids of, you know, engineering experts and scientists and, uh, you know, a bunch of wealthy, affluent kids. Like, it, it, is this just because of proximity and... He's starting at the lowest level, kind of low profile, doesn't want to make it about himself, or why Palo Alto? I think there's certainly an ease of location. You know, if you're going to grad school at Stanford, Palo Alto is right across the street right there. Um, Palo Alto does have decent connections with Stanford, too. I mean, Jim Harbaugh's kids went there, former uh, 49ers quarterback Steve Bono was a coach at Palo Alto. His son is actually on a team that won a state championship at Palo Alto High School, and he's actually helping coach alongside Andrew right now, Christoph Bono. Um, I, I think that high school is more of a proximity thing than anything. It's right by Stanford. As I understand it, Andrew lives in the neighborhood kind of nearby. So it's it's as easy as it can be for him to ride his bike from home to Stanford, to Palo Alto High School and back and do all of this within his schedule that way. Um, it, it is, you know, it is a public school too, which I do find at least somewhat interesting because there is, you know, in the Bay Area, especially all throughout California, a public-private divide that there's at least a little bit of note where maybe he could have gone to some private schools where a lot of, you know, former NFL players will eventually send their kids to. But I find it very interesting just to note that it's Palo Alto, but I think it is location and proximity-based more than anything. This story, Alex, you know, you published this story. I have to think it got great run. You know, can you give our listeners an idea of, Andrew Luck's impact still in that Stanford community and in the Bay Area? I think he really is beloved here. Um, it's certainly, at least my story on social media, uh, got a lot of interest in Indianapolis, where I think his legacy is a little more complicated. But here in the Bay Area, especially for the Stanford community, he truly was the person who helped elevate Stanford from where it seemed like the ascent under Jim Harbaugh was going but especially to the standard that Stanford held for quite a while, even after Jim and Andrew both went to the NFL. That, you know, Andrew's the quarterback for three seasons. It's the first two with Jim Harbaugh, the second year being the year that they win the Orange Bowl over Virginia Tech, 12-1. and one. If they were, there was a 14 playoff back then, they would have been in that playoff that year, and maybe the next year, too, which is David Shaw's first year. Um, so he helps make the transition to David Shaw, and just was an absolute elite quarterback who set the standard that Stanford was able to maintain for the better part of the entire 2010s until the very end. So he's highly thought of. He's actually going into Stanford's Hall of Fame in two weekends, I believe. When they play Oregon, he'll be a part of their 10-person Hall of Fame class. So uh, Stanford thinks the world of him, and I think this place maybe feels like home to him to the point that he's happy to be back at school and living in the area. 
he talked when he retired about being stuck in a cycle. I want our listeners to hear this. I've been stuck in this process. I haven't been able to live the life I want to live. And after 2016, where I played in pain and was unable to regularly practice, I made a vow to myself that I would not go down that path again. I find myself in a similar situation, and the only way forward is to remove myself from football in this cycle. He removes himself from the cycle. He went on to say that it was sad, but it was clear what he needed to do. And it's sad, but I also have a lot of clarity in this. Uh, it's been a difficult process, uh, but my wife, my family, my friends, Mr. Ballard, Mr. Ursay, the Ursay family, and Frank Reich have been incredibly helpful, supportive, and I'm so grateful for them. Do you, do you ever think, Alex, about what happens to Andrew Luck if he does what a lot of other players do and just goes, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do, I guess I'll do it. You know, it didn't look like it was headed in a positive direction for him as an athlete. Yeah, it's just really tough. He, he will always, I think, fall into the what-if category of injury-based more than anything. Because really his decision to retire, for as much as some people feel as if he, you know, and certainly I saw this in my mentions from Indianapolis, that people feel like he quit on the Colts and he quit on them. Like, his ankle wasn't going to be ready to play that season. And he really, you know, he came back for what was a pretty incredible 2018 season, led them back to the playoffs. But he clearly had been dealing with so much health stuff that you just kind of wonder, what if that had never happened? Could he have been, you know, truly the Peyton Manning part two that he was set to be when he got there and looked like at the start? You know, for as much as we give a lot of rookie quarterbacks here credit when they do okay, a lot of rookies like Trevor Lawrence and whatnot have struggled in year one and year two. Andrew made the playoffs that very first year. It's a rarity to see that level of confidence from a rookie right out of the gate, and he sustained it until his body broke down on him. So I think the bigger what if isn't the retirement. It's more what if he had stayed healthy the whole way. And it, it's hard not to imagine that he'd be a pro football Hall of Famer because he's pretty close even with the career he already had. I keep thinking about, you know, where he's going with this. Do you get the sense this is just him dabbling, getting a taste of what he loves while he, you know, finishes the school that he's trying to finish? Or do you think Andrew Luck ends up coaching, the you know, head coach at Stanford someday? Like, is, is he thinking about that, or is that on the table for him? It, it's really tough for me to know. I, I think when you look at what he said and kind of how he's approached life, um, as I apologize, as a fire truck driving right behind okay. me. But uh, I think the way that makes a lot more sense to me, and especially if he's getting a master's in the School of Education at Stanford, is something like he's going to go be a high school teacher, maybe teach like history or something, since he's kind of thought to be fascinated with it, and continue to just kind of coach at the high school level in a way that he can kind of set his own determined path with it. If he decides he wants to kind of go up to high school varsity head coach, you know, Philip Rivers is obviously doing that in Alabama. There's other quarterbacks who have done it, but he seems somebody, you know, based off of what you've read when he has talked, that is a lot more at peace with the life that he has now than he has in a long time. I don't imagine getting back into the daily grind of football in a head coaching role at the college level, even at the high school level to some extent, is, is in the near future for Andrew. Maybe the far future, but certainly not anytime soon. Alex Simon with us. Uh, you look, you are a uh, Arizona State Cronkite School graduate. You're working in the Bay Area now. What do you make of the Pac-12 implosion? Uh, can you wrap your head around it? it uh, 
honestly, I can't. I mean, I, I'm a Bay Area native, grew up here. I remember how big it was kind of on the peninsula back in 2011 when Stanford had game day for the first time ahead of Oregon and some of those massive Stanford-Oregon matchups from the late 2000s and early 2010s. It, it's kind of mind-boggling. I also went to school in North Carolina at Elon College, now Elon University, which is a small school there, but I got to see the passion of the ACC. So there is a part of me that thinks, hey, the ACC is a great college home. I just don't think it's the right home for Stanford or Cal. I just don't imagine that you know playing games in College Park, Maryland, is what kids that go to Oregon or UCLA are signing up for. And it, it just saddens me because as somebody who was staying up till 2.30 in the morning when Cal and Washington State were shooting out to 68, 68, 70, 68 back in the day, you know, it, it really pains me to see that we're going to lose something that has such a strong regional identity here that, you know, maybe people on other sides of the country and other parts of the country don't care as much. But the people who do care here care deeply, and it really does. Like it's it's going to be kind of a weird full year of Pac-12 sports in that way. Alex, I really appreciate your time. Great work on the story. Before I let you go, how gratifying was it for you, being a Bay Area guy, to tell this story and to be near it? I, I've just had an absolute delight, and and especially because of the fact that this is a high school sports story. I think the best stories that we can tell in this industry oftentimes are in high school sports. And especially because in the Bay Area, you know, everybody would associate the passion for high school sports all across the country in places like Texas or Ohio or Georgia. But even in a place like the Bay Area, there is a lot of passion for it. And there's a lot of interest and a lot of attention that people would pay. So to be able to kind of tell a really unique story that's brought up a lot of attention and especially as well, you know, just today, I was able to have a story about the emergence of girls' flag football, which is now a massive thing starting up in California. So it, it's been an absolute delight for me to be able to help Bay Area News Group and the San Jose Mercury News with their high school sports coverage in every way possible. Alex Simon from the Mercury News. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. All right, coming up, my final thoughts on the Pac-12 games of the weekend. My final answers, I'll lock them in. I'll tell you the scores. I'll tell you who wins. I think one Pac-12 team loses this weekend. Which is it? I'll explain next. Well, I'd like to thank Colorado State coach Jay Norvell for providing America the fodder for the week. (laughs) He was the guy who provided the fodder, uh, no doubt. I want to give my picks for the weekend, my final answers. I want to lock them in. Judah Newby. You can say agree or disagree. Tell me why. I'll give my pick. You say whether you're on board with it or not, or maybe you don't care. Because some of these games, I do think, have a don't care element. Like Weber State is at Utah in the first Pac-12 game tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. That one's on the Pac-12 network. Uh, Kyle Whittingham, who's he going to play? Is Cam Rising going to get any steps? Uh, As of midweek, it was Nate Johnson as the starter. A lot of people wondering if Rising will get in uniform. But uh, there's no line on this game because Weber State. And I have Utah winning 42-14 just because Utah's not the kind of program to try to put 60 or 70 or 80 on somebody, although they did score 66 against Southern Utah. 42-14.
Agree, disagree, or indifferent? Yeah, right on the money, I think. I'm with you on, on rising. My only question is, does Damian Lillard show up for this game? You know, that, that's the only uh, wrinkle. Uh, and then next week, because that week four, week four slate is super tasty, you got Utah-UCLA at Rice-Eccles. So um, all these week three games kind of are wetting the appetite a little bit for week four, but that Utah-UCLA game is going to – that's not going to sneak up on anybody either. That's, that's a good game. Oregon State home in the second game of the day nice and early game 12:30 kickoff on FS1 will FS1 have a broadcast crew in house <laughs> probably not uh but I'll be in house for San Diego State at Oregon State uh Beavers have covered the spread 9 straight times it's huge 9 straight times they're at home they're 13 and 2 against the spread in their last 15 I pay attention to such things I also pay attention when uh, teams play. And San Diego State was really disappointing in a 35-10 loss to UCLA. There's a real chance that Oregon State will shut out San Diego State tomorrow. Hmm. There's a real chance of this. It could be a lower-scoring game where Oregon State wins like 31 nothing. It could be 35-7. But I have it at 42-14 because I think Jonathan Smith will play some guys, given that it's week three. And he doesn't need the shutout. Oregon State is a 24.5 point un, uh, favorite, and they're going to cover that. 42-14 is the final. That That's your Utah Weber score? No, no. Or no? No, no. Utah, we, yeah, same score, 42-14. Okay, yeah. Yep. I've got 45-7. I'm, I'm right with you. Okay. I'm, I'm wondering if that shutout's coming to, to that point. But uh, at the same, do you think Aiden Childs plays for a third straight game? Yes. I think he plays. Probably the whole fourth quarter. If I'm Jonathan Smith, I I want the win, but more importantly, I want healthy players going into Week Four at Washington State. And I don't want to. I just don't want a bunch of guys banged up. I don't want to go into conference play that way. And it's it's the only thing that tells me that it's not going to be a completely dominating performance. But San Diego State not good up front. I think Oregon State will run. Run, run, and I don't think it'll be hard for them to score. By the way, Petros is on the call here, so you'll either see him or No, he's be... not going to be there. <laughs> oh, there you go. He's doing two... See, this is how you know Petros is not going to be there. And I love Petros. This is not his fault. But FS1 has him calling two games tomorrow. Oh, yeah, he's got ASU Fresno. <laughs> yeah. So unless Petros is going to be in Corvallis at 1230 and then uh, bussing over to, you know, the Corvallis Airport, and then fly into Arizona. That's pretty much right. Dillingham, 7.30 game on FS1. Yeah. Hardest working man in show business. <laughs> uh, I just, uh, I think uh, it'll be uh, it'll be a long day for San Diego State and a long day for Petros. Let's be real. Um, let's go to the next game. Game number three. Uh, it is the Idaho at Cal game. This one's dicey. 1 p.m. Saturday, Pac-12 Bay Area. Idaho's pretty good. They beat an FBS team 33-6. to They beat Nevada last week. They're 2-0, and the Vandals are, for the first time in 25 years, and they're ranked 10 in the FCS coaches poll. Now, Pac-12 teams should win this game, but I will not be surprised if Idaho hangs in there. There's no line on this game. I think Cal wins it 24-14. Will not be surprised if it's a little closer. Could be 21-17, but this... I think Cal wins, but I think they get pushed a little bit. Man, I hope they I hope they put up thirty. 
I want to believe in that new look offense. I do, and what they showed at North Texas to be like the real thing. So I'm going to say they win. I'm going to say they win 31 to 10. But I feel like you've got a better sense of it than I do at this point. I don't but, know uh, if I do because I had them beating yeah. Auburn last week and they 14-10 loss. Yeah, so but I, I mean, holding them to 14 points like that's a that's an encouraging defensive effort. But the offense wasn't there, you know. I just worry that Cal, the Cal players, they need to get some reward. Like, it would have been a reward to beat Auburn. And I just kind of worry that they're going to look ahead to the Pac-12 season. It's a little bit of a letdown after Auburn. It's Idaho. But Idaho is going to come in there flying around going, this is our chance to, mm-hmm. you know, beat another big program. Uh, North Carolina Central's at UCLA, 2 o'clock Saturday, Pac-12 Networks, Pac-12 LA, really. Chip Kelly... Uh, insisting that he has three quarterbacks. We all know he has one. The name is Dante Moore. <laughs> but uh, I got UCLA 38, North Carolina Central 14. There's no line on the game, but I think UCLA wins it and wins it easily and rests a bunch of guys in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I'll go 41-13, just a little bit more juice for UCLA just because they've got the dudes and they've got the physicality. But you're right, Chip is professional. He's efficient. They'll take care of business in the Rose Bowl. And and North Carolina Central not a bad offense. They've scored some points this year, but it's like thirty eight fourteen in my book, or forty to fourteen as you have it. North Northern Colorado at Washington State. Washington State trying to go three and zero. Cougars ranked in the AP top twenty five. This one's at two o'clock on the Pac twelve network. There may be some temptation for Washington State to peek ahead, but um, I just think Washington State's offense carries the day here. Northern Colorado, not great. No line on this game. Washington State, 56. Mm. Northern Carolina or Northern Colorado, 3. Oh, man, that's a woodshedder. I'll, I'll say they put up 60, and I'll give Northern Colorado 10. <laughs> but, yeah, it's going to be ugly. This one's interesting, the 2 o'clock game on Peacock. Washington's at Michigan State. Tremendous distractions around this game. Mel Tucker with the Spartans suspended without pay. Washington's on grass. Interesting game. Washington's favored by 16. What could happen? I just, I've been talking to people in the Big Ten who are not high on Michigan State when they are focused. They are distracted in this game. I think Washington's going to score about 35. I think Michigan State's going to score like 17. I have the Huskies covering, winning. Good win for the Pac-12. I feel like people are still sleeping on Michael Penix somehow, nationally. I've got UW winning and covering 41-20. Hawaii at Oregon, 5 o'clock Saturday, Pac-12 Network. Oregon is a 37.5-point favorite. Will the Ducks look ahead to the Colorado game in Week 4? Big question. But Or will Oregon have 14 penalties for 125 yards? Another big question. Uh, I have Oregon winning 56-14. I think they cover... I think it's a comfortable win. I think they look good, and they feel good about themselves heading to Week 4. Yeah, the penalties, uh, you can't really judge that with Hawaii. They're not good enough to force Oregon penalties like Texas Tech was. Um, Yeah, but Oregon wins. They win. They cover, and I can't wait for next week. Moving along. Sacramento State at Stanford. Fun game. Troy Taylor, former Sac State coach, now at Stanford, has built himself a nice little fun football team at Stanford for this season, but they're no no threat really to contend in the Pac-12, but they are, I think, a real threat to Sacramento State. As shaky as Stanford has been, if you look at Stanford wins, non-conference wins, since the Pac-12 era started in 2011, Stanford's fourth in the conference behind Oregon, Utah, Washington. Stanford's fourth. So I think Stanford's still good enough to win this game. 
They win it by double digits. There's no line on this game because it's Big Sky against Pac-12. Stanford 31, Sac State 21. Yeah, I'll ride with that. I like that. 31, 21. I'll, I'll, I'll say 33, 20 just to be a little bit different, but I think that's right there, and it's cool for Troy Taylor against his former team. Here's a wild prediction. Sac State finds a way to lead this game early. They lead at some point in the first half, and they're close at halftime. Hmm. Keep an eye on that. Colorado State, Colorado, the game of the week, if you're nationally <laughs> tuning in. ESPN, 7 o'clock. Shane Orville, Colorado State coach, poking the bear. Does it work for him? I think a little bit. Colorado's got some flaws. Nebraska could not exploit them. But I look at Colorado State's games. We have some proof of performance from Colorado State on the offensive side of the ball. They scored 24 against Washington State. So I have Colorado's a 23.5-point favorite. I think Colorado State's going to cover sunglasses or not. I have it 38-28. Colorado wins the game, but Colorado State keeps it closer. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Good call. Fresno State's at Arizona State, 730 FS1. I, Fresno State's a three-point favorite. I think they're going to cover. They'll win 34-24. Yeah, I like it. And then Utah at, uh, UTEP at Arizona, 8 o'clock on the Pac-12 Network. Arizona's a 17.5-point favorite, and I think they cover easily. 41-14 is your final. Great show. We'll see you Monday.